clubhouse. Do I have to be at the dinner? Only have some troublesome business in Pittsburgh I'm dealing with. I need you there. I wish I could understand the whole thing. You don't even like opera. Not so I've ever noticed. <laughs> George, the opera is where society puts itself on display. Not just in New York, but all over Europe. And the leaders take boxes where they meet each other and their children court each other, and that is how the wheels of society turn. The Academy tried to stop the Metropolitan from being built. And they thought they could. But it'll be open by the end of October. If you decide to back the bet, you know you'll be taking on Mrs. Astor. And? Of course, I love that you're not afraid of her. I'm glad to be her friend, George, but not her lackey. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the long-awaited Gilded Age season two premiere, You Don't Even Like the Opera. In my head, that's how, that's how it was originally intended to be read. I think that's how Lord Fellows would want it. People would lose their mind if George Russell, George Russell <laughs> had said it that way. Calbert, you don't even like the opera. Uh, this episode, like all of the episodes, except for one of them, was written by the series creator Lord Julian Fellows and was directed by Michael Angler. Michael Angler, you may recall, directed five of season one's episodes. This is episode number six. Nice. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, HBO series. We know this is overdue. Just a little housekeeping. <laughs> It's silly to pretend otherwise. As we were preparing to get ready to begin recording, because we actually, we've got screeners and we'll be back on track in a timely fashion pretty soon, uh, I went and moved. Uh, and so my entire setup and, and recording studio has been in boxes. It kind of still is. This is a new area. <laughs> it's not fully, you know, zhuzhed up yet with uh, soundproofing and all of that. But uh, we're making the best it can. And then I lost a very important person to me. Well, not person, person. I lost my cat. Elvira was a wonderful cat, and she passed away, and I was devastated. And I'm very heartbroken still. And literally happened just as we were getting ready to record the first episode. So it's been a bit. It's been a bit, and it's been a lot. And we appreciate you guys being patient while we took time to get ready to get this out because, yeah. It, <laughs> Life it, was happening all over the place. So, yeah, for sure, hard. there's a lot going on. And uh, I know our Gilded Age fan group uh, wraps their arms around you, Mike, because I know that they are supportive of our podcast and supportive of your personal biz. They've always been very nice and great. So, we're, we're real human beings. <laughs> with real stuff. With real stuff. Hey, speaking of, uh, every time we talk about this show with you guys, we're going to assume that you've already watched the episode. So we're not going step by step and recapping the episode. So you might think, hey, how come you didn't talk about that particular thing? 
we may touch on it on another episode, or it may just be something that we didn't feel like we related to or needed to talk about. So if there's something that we skip that you would like us to go back and talk about, please shoot us a, a little DM or something over in Facebook or on Twitter, now called X. For, for This is my first podcast I've had to say that, so that kind of blows my mind. I still just say, <laughs> I, I just say Twitter. <laughs> well, you guys know where to find us, so or please. Instagram too, Facebook also. Yeah, so come on over and check out Pod Clubhouse. We've got lots of other shows that we're covering as well as well as live events so if you wanted to know what was going on in different cons check out all of our different podcasts oh and not to gild the lily but the best way to get in touch with us that we'll definitely see is leaving us a five-star review over on apple apple itunes podcasts or spotify podcasts because if you leave us a nice comment we're gonna read it and we're gonna say thank you for reading it so if you want to say something leave us that five stars as long as it doesn't say mean things about us we're gonna read it on the air <laughs> Well, on that note, let's get back to the Gilded Age. Mike, it has been a long time. I feel like it's been forever since we saw some of these characters. So one of the things we did in our preparation for this season was we did go back and do a little rewatch, revisited our notes, revisited all of our characters. I was really happy to get to see them all again. I, I really felt like the tone of this season just started off lighter and brighter and like old friends. Like I wasn't just meeting these people and getting them out and out of the homes that we saw them in all of season one, being in the churches for the beginning of this episode, really like I literally and metaphorically saw them in a new light because it was so shiny and bright compared to those dark homes they've been in. Quick. Don't even think about it. Yes. How many months do you think it has been between the season one finale and the season two premiere? Oh, gosh. I want to say it was cold the, the last time we saw them, I feel like, or something. So, But I know we're in the spring now. I know this is Easter. Um, so I'm going to say at least a few months, three, four, five, something like that. Well, in the show, I mean, actually, broadcast real lifetime. It's oh, been, for God's sake. It's been a year and a half. It's been a year and a half. Roughly, it's like 17 months and change. You guys, that's a long time since we've talked to you. Yeah, it doesn't feel that long. When I went back and I was like, I think the, the finale, you see the one finale was like end of 2022 it wasn't that long ago it was like march of 2022 wow that's been a really long time well let's talk let's let's dive into the the show time right, kind of get to the episode focus all right let's get to it <laughs> episode picks up roughly six months after the season one finale we even talked about in our season one finale coverage which you can go back and listen to at wherever you listen to podcasts uh, it's episode nine let the tournament begin was the episode uh we had guesstimated that it was roughly about october so now we're picking up roughly six months later. It's Easter Sunday, 1883. I went and looked for you guys. Easter Sunday in 1883 was March 25th, 1883. That's where we're at. So if it was October and the end, that's like five months. But I really think we're like six months here because I think there's even a comment that Mr. Scott says uh, about it being six months, yeah. maybe thereabouts, since... Uh, since all of Peggy's troubles and heartbreak and journey began. So, uh, like I said, episode picks up with everyone in their Easter finery, lots of bonnets being pulled out of boxes, lots of satiny, beautiful, colorful dresses. I like, gotta tell you, it was like costume porn for me when they just kept like revealing these beautiful hats, these beautiful gowns. I mean, they were so gorgeous. I appreciated the entire like C and B scene a scene of walking to church and I mean I'm familiar with the musical Easter Parade and that's all I was thinking about was just this idea of them like walking along and 
presenting themselves after like a like a winter's like hibernation and like now we're like bursting out with our colorful outfits and everybody's sort of like checking everybody out. It feels like very first day of schooly to me. Very, very much so. It's also like Easter eggs come to life. Oh, well they wear colorful dresses, that's for sure. Very Jerry Astor, whoa man, that was a that was a turquoise dress if I ever saw one. <laughs> and, which is interesting because then you compare it with the first glimpses that we get of Peggy who is in morning clothes. She yeah. is, she's, I mean, the dress is beautiful, but it's that dark purple and it's the black and immediately you're thinking something horrible has happened. My God, what has happened with Peggy? So, for sure, for sure. Uh, before we get into that, I think we're going to, we're going to actually tackle Peggy first. We have to just say, Gladys, what, what are they doing with this poor girl? Her costuming, Here's the is deal. it her age? Is it is it is her costuming a metaphor for the naivete of age? Or maybe even the awkwardness. Like, she doesn't yeah, know that. how to dress yet. She doesn't know how to, like, style herself or put herself together. This happens throughout this entire episode, but I'm sure it's going to happen over the whole season. We saw her last season go from wearing her hair down and, and not being out in society to her now at the end of last season coming out, putting her hair up now. We discussed that a lot in season one. If you guys want to know more about that, go listen to those podcasts. We explain a lot about how hair mattered in terms of where you were in society so for her wearing her hair up now but just the colors and the combination and the fit especially compared to her mother who is just i mean bertha is impeccably dressed always 24 and like cutting edge like she looks so i just think amazing for now yes but i mean even now like if you saw that woman walking around down the street well you would say think like the style of the dress would be like old-fashioned but the the actual like color choices and the way that it fits her oh my god just impeccable but mrs astor though also old-fashioned but expensive though with if, if not for the bustles i think bertha russell and mrs astor they would you would see them in the modern age and yes you would think outdated but expensive. You would say yeah. they are rich ladies, but their muscles are insane. Well, and they also have these very classic mm. choices, what they make. And so for them, like, I mean, you're right that like the fit or certain things would be different now, but honestly, the colors, the fabrics, I mean, beautiful, just gorgeous. So yeah, I mean, Gladys, we're looking at you. We're feeling really bad for you. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm certainly, I understand the power of costume, but it's not, I'm not a fashionista. I'm I'm really not no. uh, in any way, shape, or form. But I did notice Gladys, very awkward. I think that's a great word for it because it's older, but it's still not really put together. It's certainly when you contrast it to her mother not put together. But the interesting contrast, and I'm curious what people think about this, if you guys picked up on this, compared to Marion. We we took Marion over the coals a lot in season <laughs> one about her outfits. Just weird cheers over fabrics and some just some odd choices that were also awkward or at least not high society New York. Certainly not. Because she she wasn't. She was very much an outsider. I think she looked fantastic in this episode. And, you know, spoilers don't get ahead, but in the next couple of episodes, I think she looks fantastic. Like, they have improved her dress game because she's older now, and she's wiser, and she's wiser to the ways of New York. Her experience with Mr. Rakes and nothing else seem to have left her in a better place 
fashion sense, and fashion is important in this world, like it or not, it is important in this world. Right, because it's a status symbol, and so that's what that's what it really is all about. And 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 especially, I think what you're talking about with the awkwardness and the sort of transitioning, I think that what it does for me, and I think a lot of audience members who maybe do really care about the costuming, it tells you a lot about where their character is in their growth and in their understanding of expectations and meeting those expectations. So of course we're going to have Gladys looking all uncomfortable because she's not, you know, like even really comfortable in her own skin yet. You know, she's not ready to take up space as an adult woman in society. She's still arguing with Bertha about whether or not she can go to things, you know, like we're still doing that dance. So I think that there's a lot that they did show in their costuming, in just their growth in general and where they are status wise in society. This is a perfect place to pause because we didn't say it up top. At least for the beginning of these episodes, these first few episodes, while the SAG strike continues, we are actively not interviewing anyone from the show. Uh, We had a long debate whether or not to even cover the show in real time because we, from the moment that the writers went on strike, have stood in solidarity with them. We have avoided commenting or promoting, which is a big part of what we do as a podcast network that largely talks about pop culture and entertainment movies and television. We think it's right to cover the show in the way we do with the recaps, but whereas we'd be trying to have on Carrie Coon or Morgan Spector or any of the other super, you know, wonderfully talented cast, but even the behind the scenes crew, we're actively trying not to do that right now. We want to stand with the actors. We think we think they're cause of righteous. We think they need a fair contract that protects them and their legacies. The AI stuff that's being that the studios are proposing is really terrifying. Uh, as someone who does not like AI to begin with, what they're proposing to do, I think, is 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 horrible for artists of all stripes. So it would only start with actors. So we stand with them very much so. So you won't... I, I thought of this because I was going to say I would love to get the costume designer on the show. Right. And hopefully one day soon we will be able to. But at least for right now, none of that is going to be coming. So you're just stuck with Caroline and myself for the time being. Which we know you're super happy with. But I can do voices. I can be like, it's a me! Uh, I don't know. So... <laughs> Uh, interesting, religion uh, entered the show for the first time in any kind of significant way. I feel like maybe they touched on religion a little bit in season one, but uh, Easter Sunday, you can't have Easter Sunday without a lot of church services. In the opening scenes, we see three distinct churches. We see Peggy's Church in Philadelphia, which if any Philadelphian is listening, do you know what church this was supposed to be? I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I know New York landmarks. I don't really know much about Philadelphia. So I'm curious if it was meant to be a particular church that we should know. Uh, there was a little bit of St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, that we saw, which some of the servants were in. Uh, and then there was St. Thomas Episcopal Church, which is a beautiful church that gets largely overshadowed by St. Patrick's Cathedral because St. Patrick's is just a few blocks away down Fifth Avenue from St. Thomas Episcopal Church, but I want to talk about it a little bit because it's kind of fascinating for the show. So St. Thomas Episcopal Church still stands. It's actually on its fourth building now. The fourth church was built in 1914. So the church that we're seeing in the show is actually the third version of St. Thomas Episcopal Church. Why is that interesting? Because the church was founded in 1823 
one of the founding families of it, William Backhouse Astor Sr. was one of the founding members of the church. So the Astor family is one of the founding members of the church. William Backhouse Astor Sr. is Mrs. Astor's father-in-law. So I thought that was, I mean, we, they had a very, they, get, they got to walk very far up, Caroline and Mrs. Astor, got to walk very far up to a very nice pew. It's because they literally helped found that church. So after the destruction of the second church, they built, they moved the church uptown to where it stands now at 53rd and 5th. The church was opened in 1870, and that's the church that we're seeing them in now. The current church is also still at 53rd and 3rd, but the third church, the one that the show is taking place in, was actually destroyed by fire in 1905. The only thing that survived was the altar cross and the tower that stood on top of the church. The only thing that survived the fire and the water damage from it. Two months after the church was destroyed in 1905, the parishioners built a 1,200-seat chapel on the ground of the former church, and they used the altar cross, like, underneath it. So, like, it existed, like, underneath it. So it was, like, still there. And so when they decided to rebuild the church and they decided to keep it in the exact same location, they built the fourth church, which opened in 1914, on the same footprint as the third church. So it was just kind of cool. You can read about it. I'll put it up on our Facebook. I'll put up some more pictures and what it looked like back then. But, again, I love when the show takes the real and, and really places our characters our fictional characters, right in the world with the real characters, the Shermahorns, the Astors, they would have been attending services here. We just didn't get to see them in their particular uh, pews, but it's kind of cool. But like even Mrs. Astor getting the front pew, society dictates all that. Just like the Academy of Music, they get the best box at church because they helped found the church. It's an old society church. It's an old money church. To George and Bertha, maybe they're going to go by them and build themselves a brand new church one day. Who knows? Yeah, so all those pews are bought and paid for, so we know that's how they raise money to, to keep the church going. Families actually choose and uh, pay for each of their pews, so of course the Astors would have, I'm sure, the most expensive and nicest pew right up front. But it was interesting to see the servants in church. Again, I thought that, you know, them like uh, joking around with Borden and, and doing all the things they were doing, it really just added this lighter tone to the show than we've seen. I mean, we've never really seen them ribbing each other and like and being outside of the kitchen and not being in that same, you know, sort of work mentality, like hurry up, we got to do this. Like they were just socializing and in bright, light, daytime type of settings that felt... Not in their servant clothes, not in their right. chef or butler or right. ladies made They all felt more real in, a, right. in an interesting way. I was having a little bit of a, of a strange feeling about it because it in some way, I was feeling like they were feeling out of place in time because suddenly they felt so much more real. It wasn't like I was being told a story about these people who were in this house or houses across the street from each other where they those people seem like they never left there. You know, it's like your teacher. You think like she sleeps at school. Like it seems like these people never had any life outside of being, you know, at work. And so to get to get a chance to see them outside of work and see them actually doing things, their own personal nature, like going to church, I, I just think gave them so much more dimension. Taking the time to show that really adds to the world building, though. Because of what you're saying, Chef Bourdain, uh, you know, or... Um, just Borden now. Or Josh Borden <laughs> from Kansas. Like, he exists now outside of the kitchen. 
you know, Church, Bannister, Bauer, they all exist outside of there because we have dropped in on them in their personal time. It makes you able to get immersed into the show and buy into the fantasy of the show more because they become more than just one or two dimensional characters. They, they become fully flesh. Now I care more about Borden and the fact that he's still getting ribbed about uh, living a French life for all those years, or the way Jack is taking the time to, you know, make eyes at Ms. Weber and make plans for a later date, which would be hard when he was in his livery, fine livery, you know, outfits, uh, serving Agnes and Ada. It would be hard for him to go across the street and make eyes at Adelaide. Now, this is his personal time. This is his off time. He's not working, so he can actually talk to her and, and make a plan to see her. It, it really helps buying to the show. So yes, let's take the time and do that. This episode was much longer than the episodes we had last season. So it also allowed it to breathe more. And episode two is also longer than the normal episodes. And that's that's not a premiere. You would expect episode two is going to be a more standard length episode. It was a bit longer than your standard episodes last season. I like that because that that tells me they're going to let the characters breathe and the stories breathe and it won't be so concise. One of the things we wish were different last season, I think, was that it went too fast. There was too much to cover with only a nine episode season. Season two is only eight episodes. We want to get all of that. We don't want it to go by. So let make the episodes longer. Let the characters breathe. Let's let's not just hit the high points. Let's dig into the bone marrow a little bit. Well, and I think also we had a lot of urgency about every matter that was going on last season because the Russells in particular were brand new taking in on this whole scene where now they're here. And now we're starting to kind of like scratch away at the old money in a way that feels more methodical and sort of like measured instead of like full-on assault which is what Bertha was having to do to just break through that first initial part so I think you're right I appreciate the breathing room I appreciate that you know Lord Fellows was always a storyteller who wanted you to care about these characters and and giving us this extra time with them allows you to develop a relationship with each of these people. Like I care a lot more. Like I was indignant about the fact that Jack was talking to Miss Weber. I was like, where's Bridget? You were very upset. I was mad, you guys. I was like, what happened there? So, you know, as we talk about our characters, I am, I'm really wanting you guys to give us some feedback about like, who are you starting to relate to? Are there one, are there people like St. Marion? who maybe at the beginning we were sort of like, she seems sort of like she's our little, uh, you know, audience proxy as a part of their thing where everything has to get explained through her all the time. She would ask those questions like, like what is a dress? And then suddenly someone would have to answer her. And it would seem so silly, but they were trying to answer for us. Now I feel like, okay, we're all on the same page. We're all here. We all know all the characters. Now we get to really go with them on this adventure. And even with the show's metaphor of new money, old money, old rules, new rules, last season had to give you the extremes of it to show why it was important for Bertha to put herself through that and her family through that to try and break through. Now we get to see how the battle plays out in actual situations, mm-hmm. right? Last year, it was the first season. It was the large concept of we've been here for multiple generations of wealth. You are brand new wealth. And so we think you're less than. Now we get to see actually play out in real scenarios. It's not just the 
thesis statement, but now we're getting the arguments for what, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be old money versus new money? I've got no money. I don't get a box at any of the academies or, <laughs> or metropolitan opera houses, but that is a great use of the metaphor for the show because the Academy of the Music versus the Met was a real-life scandal that really epitomized the old guard and the new guard that would not be denied, that they had too much money to be ignored. So they went and built their own sandbox. They no longer needed to get the approval to play in the old money sandbox. It's, it's a genius move to use that real example as a way of explaining and demonstrating the entire thesis of the show. But we're not at Opera Wars yet. Let's go some, through some new faces, and then we're going to talk about Peggy first. Season two of The Gilded Age will feature brand new faces to the show, joining the old faces of the show. Everyone's back except for Mr. Rakes. I don't think anyone misses that character. <laughs> but maybe he will be back because he's getting married in a week. That's what we heard. That's what we heard Scandal, from, man. Scandal. <laughs> from Reverend Matthew Forte, played by the fantastic Robert Sean Leonard, who I always think of fondly from The Poet Society and House. He was always had his uh, stalwart friend for reasons passing understanding. Um, but he's great here. I, I really liked him. I think, you know, as someone who was also always searching for a wonderful bowl of New England clam chowder, mm-hmm. uh, though he, a Boston transplant and me, a lifelong New Yorker, we have chowder oh, that's, to bond. That's, that's you say chowder, but I, I say chowder uh, to bond us. But that thick, milky substance we are always chasing at this sure. moment. So. You know, I have to tell you, so he's one of a couple of our new faces. And I have to tell you, as a whole, I really liked the casting and all these new characters, which yeah. that is pretty rare for me, actually. You know, sometimes when you get a, a, a season two and they bring in a bunch of new people, you kind of roll your eyes like, ah, they're, all they're going to do is take up scene time from the people we really care about but the casting i think was really great with this and the the three characters that we're going to talk about great i really like the addition of them uh dashiell montgomery the nephew of arnold van ryan agnes's past husband played by david fur was talked about in the beginning in the church scene and then we actually went on to meet him and his daughter francis 14 year old uh daughter francis he is a widower the show went out of its way to tell several times him and Marion are not cousins close, but not quite. Definitely They're... not blood-related. They no. said that so many times. Related by marriage, not by blood. There is no way these two do not have some massive chemistry. And hey, I don't want to skip over the Reverend without mentioning that I thought it's a little bit of shocky-shocky chemistry between Reverend and Ada, which is like... Okay, I like the idea that she could find someone who would be like a compassionate, kind, nurturing kind of man who I want to think this reverend would be. And I think Dashiell is just bringing this. I mean, if we just go on names alone, you guys, Mr. Rakes last season. I mean, I was like, come on, you're calling the guy a rake. Give me a break here. But then now you have Dashiell, like dashing, handsome, Prince Charming. Like The smile on her face, you guys, as she's saying all the words. <laughs> undeniable i mean come on right and he's got this little daughter francis who's adorable i think she's cute she could be trouble you guys she could be trouble you always gotta have like a little rapscallion in there to cause some trouble but i think dashville is a great ad here again i'm just really happy with the casting here i was like they were solid 
I think no one made you happier of the new characters, actually. I think you are really taken by Jordan Mahone playing Samuel Spring as we move towards Peggy's story. First, before we get into Peggy, let's play, <laughs> let's play this clip, and then we're going to get into Peggy, because I think this clip is a great start to where Peggy is and a good kickoff to discussion of where is Peggy going. Keep it. I mean it. Love this bear. His mother should have his favorite toy. His other mother. She loved him. My Carlotta. She loved him. She nursed him and she caught the fever and she died with him. Shall we go downstairs, my boy, Easter Wind? I have a gift for you. Here's a photograph, if it wouldn't be too painful. I have one of them taken later with my wife, not long before they died, just as I remember them. I appreciate your kindness. So do I. I mean it. We share a child. Bond. No one can even try to understand. That's why we came. We shared a child, a bond no one else could even begin to understand. I, I was a little heartbroken in how this played out. I think I understand narratively. I think I understand logically and objectively why maybe it had to be this way. But this seemed so unbelievably sad, given how Peggy's season one ended, learning this child that she's already grieved for, and you know, a mother or a parent who loses a child, I think, believe I believe, grieves every day. The, the, the grieving never ends. To learn he is alive, only to find out that had she just gotten there sooner, maybe he doesn't pass away, but yet he is taken by scarlet fever along with his adoptive mother. Just a heartbreak after heartbreak. When does it end? When does it end for Peggy? What what, what did she do karmically? It feels like it's almost like she's being intentionally punished at this point. This felt like a reset for Peggy. Like, we were like, um, you know, okay, so here's what our story is going to look like at the end of season one. And then they took this entire storyline and wrapped it up so quickly that it made me be like, maybe I didn't get what the storyline was actually about. And that's what brings me to Samuel Spring. I guess, you know, we all thought the story was Peggy going to go find her child, you know, and her and Audra McDonald. I mean, such a pairing, you know, to be able to go out and do these, this adventure of going to find this child and everything. But I think it's going to be about something else. And so I feel like getting Peggy to be able to be back in the Van Ryan house, obviously huge. But then additionally, this character of Samuel Spring, he was so genuine with Peggy. I felt so, like, renewed hope for the world, I swear to God, when they were in church and the preacher was welcoming Peggy. Like, if you think about this time of society, the idea of Peggy, a single woman here, sitting in church with an adopted father next to her, no shame. No, like, side-eye at them. No, like, well, you gave up your child. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, like, nothing, you guys. Like, there was no 
negativity surrounding the adoption, no negativity about the fact that we know what Arthur did, but even Peggy herself, like nobody shunned her. Nobody acted like she didn't belong there, anything. I thought all of that was actually like extremely heartwarming and made me feel like just so much compassion for this situation. I really thought that Samuel was clicking with Peggy. I don't know how I feel about any of that, but if that's her story, if it's going to end up somehow that that she's going to end up being with the adoptive parent of her child, I mean, what a really wild way of getting to that relationship. But I mean, that's a story to tell, you it, know? It complicates it if that's where they go. I have a couple thoughts on this. I well. think it's very complicated. Because, remember, she does have T. Thomas Fortune back at the Globe who's married, or at least the real character, the real human was married. They were unclear about it in the show, but it was something we discussed, I think, briefly when he was introduced. But there was undeniable chemistry with him in the time that we got to see them together. We know Peggy is returning to New York. She's returning to 64th Street. She's going to take up her job again with Agnes. So it feels a little bit like she's going backwards. What did, what did she get after a season one journey? She's gotten fresh grief, uh, a scab rift off of her heart, lost a child in a very real way, again, never closer than when she got to put her hand on his tombstone. Uh, oh, God, I thought his toys. Oh, my God. Oh, playing with Mr. Bear. Oh, my God. But even again, like, what a generous person Samuel was to say, take the picture, take the bear. A mother should have their child's favorite toy. I mean, yeah. you know, he or um, and even his mother, like the right. grandmother, could have been like, get away from his stuff. You know, that was our little boy. And you gave him up for adoption. So get out of here. Right. I mean, none to, of that. To the extent to say, I wish you had come sooner. I know. Maybe you would have been able to take him away before the Scarlet Fever got him. And it's Arthur. Okay. Arthur who's dealing with his own chains right now of um, of guilt and regret and, and anger. And Arthur's still mad. He's still mad that he's being, being in the doghouse on this. But I think he's wisely tempering it with grief and sadness here. But even says, we, please don't even say that. Don't even speak that into the world because we'll all go mad. Well, I think it's because Dorothy will literally kill you in your sleep. But <laughs> I get the sentiment of we can't even imagine that had we shown up, had I called the woman I, I handed the baby off to and all of this moved faster, that little Thomas would still be alive. Three years old is far too, far too short a time to spend on this earth. Uh, just, uh, speaking of Arthur, I think, you know, Peggy obviously is is the bulk of the story. Oh, let's stay with Peggy for a second, because I think we need to talk about Dorothy and Arthur. So, yes, while they are recurring characters in the show, in this particular storyline, I think they're extremely important because a parent's loss to, of a child is, is instrumental grief. A grandparent's loss of a grandchild, though, Maybe it's not the same, but it's a pretty close second, you have to imagine. Arthur got to spend some time with the boy, at least insofar as knew he was alive. Mm -hmm. His heart was whole because Peggy and Dorothy spent all those years, three years, thinking the boy had died. Arthur didn't have that pain. He knew the truth. Mm -hmm. Dorothy didn't. So Dorothy has been now doubly robbed of her grandchild, lied to to her face for three years, man, she spends, shares her bed with, that shares her life with, the man who saved her life to, to begin their relationship, and he does this to her, that is a pain that even a parent's child 
can't appreciate. That's that's hurt that Dorothy is feeling on a level that even Peggy can't identify insofar as what her father did, because that's her life partner for how many decades at this at this point. He finally says he's wrong, which how is it six months and you're only admitting now that you're wrong? Good God, man. It's not enough. It's not enough. Dorothy, I don't know that I don't know that saying you're wrong at this point is going to be enough ever for Dorothy. Because even after she tells that story to Peggy about how her father stepped out of the shadows to stop those two men from accosting her and literally saving her life, she says it with a sadness because it doesn't make it better. Even with that, what he did is so wrong to her. But then even Peggy's saying, I believe you're sorry. I don't believe you meant any of this to, in a malicious way. But what does it change? He's still dead. Yeah. He's still dead. So what does it change? We need, I need a break from this trio of regret, she says. Yeah. Oh my God, what a great line. But also, of course, we all know that, we all know that scenario where you're, you're locked in a room, it feels like a literal cage with people where it's just misery all around and it just cycles one person to the other person. That trio of regret, it's just an unending wield of sadness and, and anger and misery. I get why she needs to get out to 61st Street because that house in Brooklyn is a tomb right now that she needs to get away from. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's a really good question for all of us audience members to ask ourselves, like, could you forgive if you were Dorothy? Could you forgive if you were Peggy? Like, would you be able to move on with your life? I really thought that Dorothy's story about the protection really mattered because a lot of the conversation we're going to have moving forward in this season, especially having to do with Gladys, but also having to do with Marion and, and probably Peggy, about the idea of marrying for security, marrying for protection, whether it's financial protection or whether it's physical protection. And when you realize that the man you chose isn't actually going to protect you yeah. and might actually be the enemy within your own home, I mean, talk about like pull the rug out from under you. So really stop and appreciate this story. If you guys kind of breezed by it because it was it was quick in a way and, and it was kind of a surprise to I think to most audience members because again, we didn't see this child being dead. We didn't see them not actually going on this journey at all. That that was all just It like, feels icky to say I wish I had seen it and, 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 and I'm a little angry we were robbed of it that it took place off screen. It feels weird to say. I don't think it's not you want to you want to see a baby die and such a horrible right. thing. But also that journey, I felt so infested in that journey. And that moment of her when when Dorothy says at the end of season one, we'll go to Philadelphia and find him together. And and she looks at her mother and says, We? You're gonna come with me? Like yeah. you're choosing me over dad? Like you're it meant the world to her. And then we didn't get any of that. We didn't get to see any of that. Yes, I know things have to happen off screen. This is not the Truman Show. We don't get the 24-hour feed. But it feels so important as to have been robbed of it, which then makes me go back to my original question. What is Peggy's narrative? What is her story? Is this a reset? Because Peggy is now returning back to 61st Street very much in the exact same position that she started season one in when she came to 61st Street the same way. The only thing is, like I said, she has new horrible grief, very fresh, that six months doesn't seem to have doused at all. And maybe she has Samuel Spring. 
But that requires him coming up to Philly. But maybe he does because he doesn't have his wife. He doesn't have his baby. So maybe maybe Samuel Spring decides, let me go north a little bit to head up I-95. That doesn't exist at this point and won't for 70 years. But, you know, head up to New York City and see see how she's coping or check in on Peggy or something. Repay the kindness because the Scots stayed with the Springs. So maybe now, maybe Mr. Spring comes and stays with the Scots in Brooklyn and, and complicates her life a little bit. But otherwise, what is the point? I'm going to throw this out there to you. If you recall, one of the big things that Arthur wanted to do was hand his business down to someone. Mm-hmm. And Peggy's not interested. Mm-hmm. Here we have Samuel Springs, who is that had, you know, housed and loved his grandchild for so many years. And he's got this mother that he's also, I'm sure, providing for. Like, who knows what could get, like, twisted out together. I do want to talk about what you said about the sort of doubling down on the grief. Because I think you skipped a step in between. That was the really scary part. Grief, then hope. She had hope. Hope is always worse. Hope. And you know why it made me think of it? Because we covered 1883. Mm. And there was a lot of conversation we had about the danger of hope. And that they cautioned a lot throughout the show about, like, be careful about how much you put your heart into something. Because chances are, especially during this time, you guys, you have to remember back to this time frame and we and again we if you guys didn't listen to our eighteen eighty three coverage and you want to know like another part of this time, you should definitely go back and watch eighteen eighty three and listen to our podcast because it is this same time period but out on the frontier, out with the pioneers, out doing like the, the wagon trail. The wagon trail essentially the really. whole thing. And so you're seeing things happening at the same time, but in a very different way. And one of the things that I noted was definitely how death was handled. Because, you know, we have the same year, we have people who lose important people in both stories and in the gilded age storyline because of where they are societally they're actually allowed the luxury of grief where they're allowed to mourn the death of people in their family that they love and lost in 1883 the show because these people are literally just trying to survive they don't get that luxury. They have to literally barely get to dig a hole deep enough to put whoever died. Literally people stamping their foot if you're taking too long. Yeah, to and, and, and walk away from them, yeah. you know, and that's that's about as good as it gets for those people. And, and on the opposite side, we've got six months grief. We've got Mrs. Blaine with an 18-month grief. Like, we've got these these lengthy mourning periods that are respected by others, and it's like, okay, Mrs. Blaine grieving for her husband of some 20 years, who's only been grieving for 18 months. That's the context. That's the wild thing. It's not, oh my God, she's still grieving after 18 months. It's, it's, it's only been 18 months. She's ready to begin renovations and be, and continue her life. But 1883 is the, you gotta, the, the you horse thing. You gotta, 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 you gotta,
different. Both, both taking place now and having this show moved into it. Yeah. Three. It is, it is an extremely interesting parallel. It, like my brain goes up <laughs> to the Van Rines and Russells in New York, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe, you know, sending a, a telegram or something to out to Montana mm-hmm. or to Colorado to try and get one of these pioneers. It would take months to get there. And never mind it, they're trying to survive a winter or raids or bandits. You know, Bass Reeves Lawman just premiered on Paramount Plus. That takes place in that same time period. So if you're looking for something that's happening right now, go watch Bass Reeves. It's taking place in that same that same eighteen hundred late eighteen hundreds time period, but in a world that these people in New York on the Upper East Side would not recognize as even being it would be incomprehensible. To them. Well, they're not their contemporaries the way that when we're watching the shows they are contemporaries, but they're so different. Right, they're so different as to I think Agnes Van Rhine would think she was watching some kind of caveman <laughs> or some kind of less than human the way the pioneers, the the German and the the uh, Texan pioneers are moving up the coast just because it is so aggressively brutal. And we did a lot of research into, is this really how it's like? And you start with 70, 70 people trying to make it a place. And literally within the six-month period that they were on their journey, it's down to 19, I think it was 19, 20, 21. Like, they lost a full two-thirds of three-quarters of their traveling party. Right. And again, like, we talk a lot about in 1883, but, like, life expectancy. Like, when we go back to the Scots, you know, they're they're probably only in their 40s. I know to us, they look older. They might be in their early 50s. But you guys they're reaching their life expectancy. Like right. they don't have 20 more years for Peggy to have another baby. Right. So this might've been the one and only chance. So whereas, it's complicated. Whereas in 1883, these lines like this were set in 1883. I can have another kid. Yeah. Or I'll have, there's a reason why I have 10 kids. Cause I'm going to lose some. Yeah. The idea Peggy ask Peggy if she thinks she's even remotely ready to have another child now. In 1883, someone's got to take care of this family farmstead that we're, we're trying to get to and build. So, Just for you guys to be like super clear if you're sitting here going, why are you referencing the year like it's something? It's the name of a show right. in the Yellowstone universe. So if right. it, ha- it happens to be something that hasn't crossed your path yet, go check it out. Also on... Paramount, Paramount Plus. Plus, so you can go check it out. Just it'll it'll only like kind of fill out the world for you, I think. So definitely go check it out and come listen to the podcast because we give you guys so much background on this stuff. Right. I think you'll appreciate it even more. I don't think I can ever forgive Arthur. I'm just letting you guys know that. I, no. I asked the question: Do you think Dorothy could? Do you think Peggy could? I don't think I ever could because that level of keeping information from me for years. What wouldn't he keep? And the intensity of the lie. Like you said, a baby died. Right. You know what I mean? Like this was this was so big. And when you think about it, like I just told you guys that, you know, Arthur wanted Peggy to take his business over. Think about all the manipulation he did to her trying to get his own dream accomplished and how much he's just ripped apart his family. I mean, it, it is kind of mind-boggling the damage he did I, I don't want to dwell on this more than necessary but i'm curious what your take is or was on the photograph peggy i think was absolutely right to say come in and say no i'm going to take it to my room and keep it with me and now it's going to probably go live on 61st street but prior to that the conversation between dorothy and arthur of hide it away or keep it out and remember the child it's it's interesting because it also plays into your grief 
And where are you in your grief? Something I'm going through right now is, do I want to be looking at pictures all day or not looking at pictures all day? It's something that I spend probably too much time thinking about right now. So it, 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 it was a discussion that hit me in a very particular way at this very moment of, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm curious what people think and how they, and how they think about it. I, uh, my very best guess is that, you know, everybody grieves differently. And I think sometimes you do want that touchstone of like seeing a picture or having something, but other times it becomes a distraction or it becomes something that you see out of the corner of your eye and it just immediately it rips off. Yeah. Well, it like portals you directly into grief. And so I think, I think it is, it's one of those things that for my own self, and I talk about this with my kids a lot, about like protecting your own heart, like making choices to not put yourself in that situation. So for me, what I saw happening with that photograph is that Arthur and Dorothy were arguing about where this little boy's picture should be. And at the end of the day, what Peggy said is this little boy always was and will ever forever be mine. He was never yours to take. He was never yours to be involved with. And so this whole discussion about where he lives in your home, Arthur, is a non-starter because this little boy is my little boy and I'm going to take him wherever I go. That was like the message to me about the picture was like, stop trying to figure out where he fits into your life because he's my life. I did love him. I'm glad you used the past tense. It helps to accept that a thing is finished and done with. The question is, what's next? The right man will come along. But I don't just want a husband, Hontana. And anyway, who says he'll come along? He doesn't always. That's true. He never came for me. But I was very shy when I was your age, with so much less to offer. It would have taken someone rare to look inside my shell. If he didn't, it was his loss. Good night. Good night. Sleep well. And dream of all the wonderful things that are waiting to happen. <laughs> Let's start with Ada there, because I think that last line, the it would have taken a special man to get through my shell to see me because of who Ada is and how she was raised and the very large shadow of Agnes that she grew up in struck me as a little bit of foreshadowing. I think there's a couple of foreshadowing things, especially with the Van Ryan ladies, and I guess she's a brook. Uh, but in that household, I think there's some foreshadowing there with the It Takes a Special Man to get through my shell to see me with what you were hitting on before with the new character of Robert Sean Leonard and, and Reverend Matthew Forte. There's a little spark there. She was the one asking him questions when he came around, and she was... She's she is she is the heart of the show in a lot of ways, but she's definitely the heart of that Van Ryan house, mm-hmm. and so it's not out of character for her to be inquisitive with a very genuine, lovely smile on her face and asking all of those kinds of questions. She has that like childlike curiosity that in a very sweet way. She's and, and a it's different, sweet one, right? And it's different than Marion. Like I said, like last season, they used Marion's naivete to give her an opportunity to ask questions like on behalf of the audience. Whereas like Ida is doing that. But I believe 
when she's doing it, it really feels like it's just her natural curiosity. It's just, and like when they say, did you, do you know Mr. Rakes? You know, you have Agnes say, absolutely not. You have Marion say, yes, we do. And you have Ada, who's always trying not to hurt feelings, trying to kind of just keep it like, mm, maybe we do, mm, like a little, like just, just trying to keep it a little bit. I know? watched that scene a couple of times. Again, another great example of some lighthearted moments that we wouldn't have initially gotten in season one, but the show feels much more confident on its footing. So even on the topic of Sissy Bingham and Mr. Rakes getting married, they were able to make a really funny joke about it. No, a little. Yes. You know, <laughs> and then, and, 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 you know, Matthew, uh, Reverend Forte just being like, okay. <laughs> so I, 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 I would be hard pressed not to point out we have Ada, her love life and her lack of a marriage was a, was a, was, I want to say a theme, but it was something that came up several times in season one. Who would ever want to marry you? was always kind of Agnes's take because she can be a little cruel and mean spirited as, as Marion is going to tell her in this episode. But isn't it Ada's turn? And it's interesting because this conversation between Marion and Ada, I thought was interesting because we spent so much time well, I don't know how much time we spent, but I know we spent time in season one talking about isn't Ada possibly Marion's future that she's staring down? Ada is a cautionary tale in this world. Gladys has to find a husband or she'll become an Ada Brooke. Marion has to find a husband or, God forbid, she'll become an Ada Brooke. That is the worst outcome, but it's also Ada's life, though. And so Marion and Ada here having this conversation, it's funny hearing Marion say... I don't want just a husband, which she's always stuck to. I don't want just a husband. She says in this episode, I don't want to be put in the cage. Now, that's in the conversation context of her having a job that she had been keeping secret. But I think for Marion, I don't want to be put in the cage is kind of her life motto. Husband, love, career, society. She doesn't want to be put in the cage. She didn't grow up in this. And right. I, I think that's an important point it's to still remind our audiences that, like, you know, remember, guys, she is coming from a different life. She didn't grow up in the city. She didn't grow up with this money and with these expectations that are, as we learn with our conversation between Oscar and Gladys, like, there's a lot of expectations placed on these women and then what they have to put up with after that. So, it, but it, the line was funny to me that she said, she says, I don't want just a husband, Aunt Ada. But then she says, and also, he may not come. So she's kind of hedging her bet. She's like, I don't want just a husband. Also, to the extent that I do want a husband, there's no guarantee that the husband will come. And then I'm you. Which, even Marion, as enlightened as she is on what a woman wants and not be in a cage, which, you know, compared to Gladys, who maybe hasn't occurred to her, yes. the cage in which she actually may find herself, Marion knows enough to know that she actually doesn't want to be Ada sitting on the fire with Pumpkin the dog with her needlepoint with Aunt Agnes as her only life companion. She knows both of those things. She doesn't want to just be a wife. She also doesn't want to be Ada either. But Ada doesn't want to be Ada. She's just kind of accepted that as her lot. So wouldn't it be nice if unexpectedly through the door walked love for Ada? Or Marion. I'll take either. Or both. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think the Van Ryan household is going to go through a lot this season. It feels like we've got some changes coming. It makes me a little nervous. Even as you were saying that, it's like if Marion becomes the Ada, then does Ada become the Agnes? And then what happens to Agnes? Well, so that's fearful to me because I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> in my notes, I have season plots, facts and guesses, 
season-themed fact, it's going to be the Aqua Wars. Mm-hmm. I have two season guesses, though. One is Ada Finds Love. I think this foreshadowing and the introduction of a man who's right in her age range and experience. And can you think of a more gentle, at least on paper, human than the rector at the church? As far as who's allowed to marry, but is also, you know, a man of God. And well, let's all think like very good thoughts about that because you know right. certainly there's lots of <laughs> of historical data that's like that could be a bad meetup. But he seems like a good guy. For and he was always there for House, even when House did horrible things. You were always <laughs> able to get him out of trouble. So you have to juxtapose that this is a cruel world. We live in a cruel world. Peggy is testament to how cruel this world can be. What she went through with her son. Let's go to the very first line spoken by Ada in this episode. And Agnes, are you okay? Is walking to church too much? We should have gotten the cab. And Agda's saying, I've walked to church my entire life for Easter. It's what I do. But she's asking it. And Ada doesn't ask questions unless Ada's thinking there's a reason to ask the question. So she's sensing something in Agnes that's prompting to her to ask a question of, we're getting old. She says, we're getting older. And that's kind of her cover. But there's more to it. That it we're getting older has more weight in this scene, even though they're covering it with humor and the beautiful dresses. We need to keep in sight of the foreshadowing here, possibly of Agnes. And she is getting older. Oscar's storyline. He says to John, you've got brothers. You don't need to worry about carrying on your family's traditions. I am the torchbearer of house Van Ryn. Oscar Oh, has always been aware that he needs to rise up and take over the house at some point when his mother passes. Mm-hmm. But it's talked about a lot in this episode. There are signs pointing that Agnes's time may be running short, at least in the large scale of life. Also, maybe that explains the, even for Agnes, extraordinary explosion she has at Marion when she finds out that she is secretly working on Thursdays at St. Mary's School teaching the girls how to watercolor paint. That eruption of when you stomp on our name and drag it through the mud, now get out of my way, that's impolite and harsh and, and loud, even for Agnes. We've heard her yell many times on the show. That was next level for, I think, of her anger that we've seen unleashed, especially at a relative. As much as Mary has pushed her buttons, we've never seen her lose her pool like that. And I think as far as things Mary has done, like maybe trying to go off and marry Mr. Riggs, which maybe I just doesn't even know about actually the full story of, there's something else at play there. Agnes is also feeling her own mortality. The fact that she's even having that conversation about Ada and not just calling Ada adult and shutting her down, that the fact that she's allowing that conversation to even be had, I think, says something. And you combine it with the Oscar and Oscar, what he's feeling about that maybe time on the Torchbearer house, right? There's foreshadowing on the walls here. And so if Marion is due to find love and Ada potentially is due to find love. And so- Oscar is starting to willing to to step up and be the head of a house is like uh, right. be resigned to his role in his life that he always knew he was going to have to do willingly or not all of those are good things well maybe not oscar having to live a lie but at least him stepping into the responsibility of the house that he knew he always had the price has got to be paid somewhere there's only one the balancing of two loves and becoming mature to take over the home that's paid with death. That's paid with death of the matriarch. It has to be. I'm not saying it's next week, but I'm saying if it happens, y'all need to be prepared and see the foreshadowing on the wall. 
I agree with that. And and it would be a terrible, terrible loss to, to lose Christine Baranski. But at the same time... She could haunt that shit, though. <laughs> she's never not going to haunt that house. I agree with you that the, the way that she snapped out so hard about the job really does reek of her feeling like she's losing the control, the, the hands on the reins of where this family is going. No, for sure. Her experiences of being forced to go to the ball at the end of last season. Her hand is being pushed around. She, everything she holds dear, same as Miss Astor holds dear. Miss Astor, though, is a politician. Mrs. Astor understands she wholeheartedly, as much as Agnes does, believes in the old ways. But Mrs. Astor also knows that as the head of the table, she has to play ball a bit. She has to be a little bit of a politician with her power. Agnes is able to be a zealot to the old ways because she doesn't yield power, but she is a member of the ruling party. So she's able to just say with no nuance, this is how it is. I will brook brook no dissent. Um, Brooke no dissent on the topic, whereas Mrs. Astor actually has to be a little more nuanced, even when she doesn't want to give in. Yeah, Agnes, so so a little bit of might be that. She may just be stressed at her hand being constantly forced and being accepting of the Russells and, and all she's being she's being literally pushed from behind by the entire show and the entire world into this new age that she doesn't want to be in. But also it was very out of character for her to snap that way, that hard, and then to be completely down-geared on it just a little while later when Marion comes in and says, I did speak too harshly. Agnes needles about her. She she said, she's, you know, I'm assuming you're going to go to the Russell's dinner. I would say something, but perhaps that would be cruel and mean-spirited of me. So she's 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 calmed down a bit and maybe realized that she lost her, her cool a little too much. If she was really righteous in that anger, she still would have been hot about it, but she had cool down to sarcastic Agnes. There's something going on there. That's my point. There are signs all over this episode that there is something going on with Agnes that we don't know yet, and maybe it is just society changing against her will. She is the rock pushing against the tide, but I think it's something Let's talk about Oscar for just a second. Let's let's like delve into him a little bit because he does have a lot going on in terms of this pivoting that he's doing and trying to figure out where is his place right now. We, he had the relationship with John. We see this whole situation that happens at the bar after church. And that situation was so heartbreaking for me. I When he came stumbling into the house and and all the women are screaming. Oh my gosh! The responses, all the screaming, and and just ourselves. The whole I thing. Ourselves are. That's how unhappy I have. Even know where myself. Don't worry. There's always a first aid kit at Pod Clubhouse. No worries. But it, the whole thing just felt so painful. And and the line that really got to me when Oscar was talking with John was this whole concept of lying to yourself versus lying to others. I, I was really grappling with that. Like, first of all, is everyone in either category? Is everyone either lying to themselves or lying to others? Or is there like some middle ground where you're living the super Oprah authentic life? Maybe you are. Or you're just lying to everyone. Or you're lying to everyone, including yourself. Who right. knows? Depending on the time. Who knows? I, I'm I'm curious as for our listeners, like, what do you guys think about this? You know, John thinks he is righteous because he's not lying to himself. He would just be lying to everyone else. And Oscar's saying, I have to lie to everyone else, but I'm going to be like kind of true to myself, even if I have to sneak around. 
Right. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do. This is such a rock and a hard place for these guys. I don't. I don't know what's the right answer for them. The irony is with the, with John. It's and Oscar calls him on this when he says that you have brothers. But there's a larger context there, though. Of you are maybe not the height of society anymore, but you're still in Adams, mm-hmm. and you still have society to thank for the cover you are given, so that you can have this very righteous feeling of I won't compromise who I am. If you weren't in Adams, you would have to compromise left and right for who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, so... You wouldn't be outside in the church, you know, courtyard area strolling with like, your beautiful new bow. No. I yeah, saw, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, it's, the whole thing, it just... Oscar is going through a lot right now. I mean, I think he went through a lot in one episode, to be frank. I mean, he really Real had to... Yeah, I mean, we, we really saw like a new situation for Oscar... And we're going to talk about him, you know, pitching to Gladys. I think it's interesting, Ben, we're going to play the pitch clip in a second. But it's interesting because in his conversation with John, he kind of voices it. It's time to put away, play childhood things and and step up into manhood the way he's seeing it and, and accept the responsibilities, which means really accepting a life that I don't particularly want to live, but I understood, I've always understood at some point I will have to pick up that mantle. And John being a little taken aback by it, a little surprised by it, maybe a little even doubting of it. But then Aurora Fane has the same, and Miss Kelly O'Hara was very happy to see her. She's just killing it on Broadway and in opera. And so very happy for Kelly that she's back on the show. But she had the same reaction to to it really kind of as John did, almost bemused, almost like, really, you, I've, we've, you and I have done this dance before where I've tried to help you get with a lady and make you imagine you've kind of made me embarrassed. You've embarrassed me in how you have acted. Are you really sure serious? But she's also hearing the same notes, though, that John is hearing of there is a resigned Oscar Anytime in season one when Oscar was plotting with Gladys or whatever, it was always in like a like a Looney Tunes acne kind of way of, you know, I can have my cake and eat it too, and it's going to be fantastic. Here it was very much like he was very low-key. He was very... I think resigned. Resigned. He yeah. was very resigned. Like, the his hair was even further down on his forehead <laughs> resigned at it. And he was kind of like, yeah, that's time time to put away the, 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 the foolish things of childhood and do this. So please set up, concoct some story to allow me to have a dinner so I can pitch Gladys myself. So again, but he is still Oscar, right? He is not this huge, upstanding human. He is still a morally questionable person, but at least he seems to be resigned to stepping into the responsibility which his role in society dictates that he take. This is something I want you guys to think about. I want you to think about this pitch that he he gives to, to Gladys, and I want you to think about whether taking advantage of the fact that he knows this girl is innocent and doesn't really know the expectations on her or, or the societal expectations of a household and that type of thing. I want you guys to wonder about <laughs> whether or not this is okay or not okay. And also think about, I think it's important even though this is all based on an insincere pledge of marriage, because he doesn't actually want to be married to Gladys or to any woman, I think it's important to measure his level of sincerity within that context, though. How sincere is he being on these several bullet points of his pitch that he's that he's about to lay out here? I think, spoilers, I think he's being very sincere. I think he means 
wholeheartedly almost everything he says here. I think some of it, what he says he exaggerates for, but I think, I've listened through it, I think he's being actually really sincere on a lot of the things he thinks he can offer Gladys as a husband. I know there are men out there who are younger and richer than I am, but we would live well. You would choose your own friends, run your own house, manage your own life. Isn't that what you want? Very much so. And I'm not a bully. I'd never force you to echo my opinions, parrot all my views. Of course not. Most men would. That's true, I suppose. I am happy to be handpacked. As long as you're doing the packing. We'd have fun, Gladys. I, I know we would. I want us to be happy. Very happy, and I believe we could be. Don't answer now. Just, just know that I love and admire you more than I can say. More than I've ever felt for any other woman. But you don't know me. Not really. I know you to be intelligent. And fine. And independent when you're allowed to be. And witty. You have every quality that I admire. True. Shouldn't you be saying those things to my father? How are you doing? Oscar? There are portions to this going back to my conversation about finding someone to protect you, whether it's financially or it's physically protecting you, that that's a lot about what's going on with with partnering up with anybody at this stage of the game, right? So Oscar needs the protection of being in heterosexual relationship. He needs the protection of Gladys. When he says, I love you, I honestly think that while it's not the type of love that we would all consider to be very sincere, very genuine. Romantic slash sexual love. I think he does love her from the standpoint of we can be best pals. Like we can protect each other. I have the know-how of what you're supposed to be doing in society. And I will let you do your thing. Like you don't have to bend down to me and do anything in particular. Like I am going to be cool and we can have fun. We can laugh and we can be together. Let's talk. Let's, let's compare that to Agnes who says she wasn't even on a first name basis with her own husband. And we have heard in season one, there was insinuations that there was abuse going on there big time. Ada saying he's, he was uh, Mr. Van Ryan was not a man you'd want to be left alone with. I mean, guys. So again, when we think about Oscar and who he is and what he represents, you know, there is a part there where it's like he is taking this girl who very much doesn't know better and creating a scenario that looks really good for her, but she doesn't know what she doesn't know. She doesn't know this would be a sham marriage. She doesn't understand that she would have to be okay with her husband either inviting people into their home or him being gone, and she doesn't know where he is. She doesn't know those things. But I think what the package that he's offering, the security package, is real. That is genuine. Keep the money safe keep your family name safe. You don't have to be pushed around or, you know, in any way, whether it be physically abused or even just you can say and do whatever you want. Important point here is her not knowing what she doesn't know is when he raises those issues, she says, well, of course. And he says, no, no, most men are not going to give you that deal. You won't be allowed to voice your opinions and have thoughts. He says to her at the end, it was something I actually didn't catch the first couple of times I heard it, but I heard it when I pulled the audio. He's, he's listing the things he likes about her, that she's intelligent, that she's fun. Fun comes up a couple of times in the pitch. He says, you're independent when you're been allowed to be. He even, he sees Oscar, who 
he very much understands how society works, but there are restrictions on him being a gay man in this world and also being a Van Ryan, which is moneyed, but not as moneyed as other moneyed people. So he's a little looking on the out, on the outside looking in. So he understands independent when you're allowed to be because he understands that she's not been allowed to be those things. And he also understands she won't be allowed to voice her opinions freely. She sees what her mother is able to do and that her father, I want to say tolerates, but because they have a real partnership, she has raised, she has, she has grown up in a house that does not reflect the majority of what this high society acts like. She has grown up in very much an outlier existence where there is a Bertha Russell who very much has a strong voice and an independent voice and that George actively, he even says in this episode, encourages and, and like kind of he like, he's, he's kind of yeah. like, he's like, yeah, baby, like he's, he's <laughs> that beard is, that beard is smiling, you know? Yeah, no, he, Actually. he enjoys her taking on challenges and he wants it. Like he really likes it. I feel like the part that is painful to me for for old Gladys is that she is so stuck on getting out from under her mother's thumb that she truly doesn't see the cage door closing behind her yeah. and that for me as just a, as a woman in the world who you know when you see stuff on Facebook that's like younger women if you're afraid in public you can come to me and, and just be like mom I, I didn't see you and I'll like I'll act like I'm your mom and we can start talking like there's a protectiveness that I feel towards Gladys that's like girl you don't understand like you want to bust away from your mother so bad but you don't understand what it is to have a thumb on your neck for the rest of your life it's an interesting conversation for bertha that if i if we were able to sit down with bertha russell the the, the character after all of this is said and done and talk to her about what could she have done differently to not alienate her daughter so hard that she wants to run so far into the gilded cage that she doesn't even see the bars around to get away from her mother who she finds overbearing and overprotective there has to be a better way to modulate how bertha has treated her because the, the conversation at the dinner table about the opera dinner the concocted lunch mm -hmm. No, not the opera dinner, because the opera dinner is why she can't go to Aurora's welcome. It's for the, it's for Cousin Dashiell. That conversation that I can't go to Cousin Dashiell's lunch that Aurora Fane is throwing because I have to be at the house because that's the night of my opera dinner. That's the day of my opera dinner that night. So, which is the whole reason Aurora is setting it up that way. That whole conversation of who's going to protect her because George says, well, she'd go with Miss Brooke. Surely she'll be invited. Will Miss Brooke protect her from all the men she shouldn't be with and, and have contact with suitors? You didn't need to say that. Everyone knows you don't want her to be with the wrong guy. But every time, at this point, every time Bertha says that out loud in Gladys's pre like presence, she's just ensuring she is going to run into the arms of the very wrong suitor. And you know what? Oscar may be, from Bertha's standpoint, very much the wrong suitor. Not enough money. Not enough status. Children, but children that will not be happy in any way, shape, or form, that Gladys will have to do all of the work for. The Van Ryan line has to continue. Oscar understands part of this duty is Oscar has to have children. Yeah. He just will not be involved in their raising at all. John Adams will have a child at some point that will have an Adams name. He will not be involved in its raising at all. That's how this works. Because the Van Ryan, because then you're not the torchbearer, you're the final. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I'm just no, I think Oscar, I think Oscar understands a child will be born of this. It has to be because otherwise it dies with him. And I think even for Oscar, who 
doesn't seem like he's putting up prayer candles to the ancestors understands that is a stain upon his reputation that he can't allow to have. So, but all of the saying, like, Bertha, in her efforts, in her strong efforts to protect Gladys from converting with the wrong type, is almost ensuring that's exactly what's going to happen to her. There had to be a better way for Bertha to modulate that all of these years. Or at least maybe not voice it so much. Because it's all Gladys hears. She just wants just to run in the opposite direction of her mother for the sole purpose of running in the opposite direction of her mother. She doesn't know what she doesn't know. know I mean, that's where we're really at. And and for me, I just feel like, man, Gladys, I don't understand how there hasn't been more conversations with you about what equals a guy you don't want to run around with. Like, it's one of those things where I feel like Bertha says it, but she doesn't come with receipts about like why you don't do that. It's just one of those, it's a, it's an agnes. These are the rules and you should follow the rules. And it doesn't matter what the reasoning is, but if there would be some explanation for the Marians or for the Gladyses, maybe just maybe they fall in line because maybe there is real danger in going with the wrong people. I want to give props to Taisa Farmiga. Apologies for not saying that name right. I'm positive who plays Gladys. When, towards the end of the pitch, he grabs her hand as he moves closer, she does this swoon motion. She's very taken by his overture here. And it's like her eyes kind of roll up and not in like a negative way, because I I don't think she's attracted to Oscar. I think she kind of avoids him severally, several times in this episode, where to the point where he, he, because he tries to approach her during after church and... Mm -hmm. So, but she's kind of, she's like, if I don't look at him and make eye contact, I don't have to talk to him. But he finally, through these machinations, the clip that I played also starts with him confessing that he arranged Aurora to throw this entire thing purely so he can make this pitch in person because he knew his mother, her mother would never allow him to have done it. And she's like, what? She's scandalized. But But not mad. But not mad. But the words work so good on her, even though all intents and purposes, she has shown that she doesn't seem to really be into Oscar. Not, I don't think she understands or gets that he is gay or whatever. I think it's just not her cup of tea. I think she's. I think she. I think he's old. I think he's so old for her. I mean, she's so young and new. Look at her and Carrie compared to Oscar. Oscar seems like their dad. I mean, he hangs out with George, really. You know, like... I mean, Right. She wants the boy that got sent to Venezuela. Yeah, he's also a young guy. I mean, it makes sense. That was her company, right? Someone like with her peer who had prospects. When he grabs her hand and he has said the right words and they've finally gotten through and he makes the motion towards her and grabs her hand, great little bit of face acting. She kind of swoons a little bit. And then she says, and then she kind of composed herself and she says, well, should you even be saying these things to me? I feel like you should be saying them to my father. But see, even just talking about that for just a second, should you be saying these things to me? Guess what, Gladys? You should already know the answer to that question. Why are you not being taught the rules of what should be said? Instead, again, it's like she's just being transferred from one cage to another cage. Right. Like, but is that Bertha's thing, though, for not sitting here down and saying, men will corner you. Yes, and let and me explain this. why. If I'm there, you have me as a buffer. If I'm there, you have me as a wingman. You can get out of uncomfortable social situations by saying, my mother wouldn't let me talk to you. I gotta go with her. But here's the other thing I want to talk about. I want to talk about the idea of low-key stalking slash consent here. She has said no. 
She's not looking you in the eye, Oscar. She doesn't want to do these things. There is a whole, like, part of this whole conversation and that we are not the people that are going to go super in-depth in this, but just and for, for, for audience members, there could be people who would feel very not cool about Oscar just from the standpoint of Marion. Everyone has made their wishes known Oscar. Marion's not very cool about it. She says a couple of times in this episode, wait, glad. Like, do you even like her? Like, what are you doing? The Gladys thing has already been resolved. Yeah, like, quit it. Good day, sir. You are like, he, she really mocked him. You are not the good day. You touched the bubble face. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll just have to clean the ceilings now. Good day. Touch so, the walls. The the walls. They're going to clean them. You didn't buy them. The physiologists are the same. Good day right. so um <laughs> all of that being said but i'm interested are you excited to be following because it definitely seems that i was thinking about this this show started off and i feel like we were packaged that gilded age was going to be marion brooks story oh yeah and that we were going to learn about the gilded age through marion brooks story and even before season one ended yes it was very much about marion's story but really it was really birth story and Peggy's and a lot of other people's. Yes, but as far as main thrust goes, I feel like the show ended up being very much Bertha's story because of her position and able to go toe to toe with Mrs. Astor and take on the system in a. Un- I understand the system, and yet I am going to try and crash the system. True. Season two seems much more diverse because it definitely seems like it's going to be Bertha versus Mrs. Astor via the Opera Wars, but it also seems like it is going to be. Peggy and Marion and Ada and Oscar. And Oscar. Who right. thought Oscar was going to end up being maybe a main thrust story? But are you excited for it? I am because I think that all these people bring up such different challenging obstacles within this time. Like, you know, we have Ada who would be decidedly a very old bride if she got involved with the Reverend. You know, we have Marion who, again, is one of these naive innocents who just has no clue how to, like, when they talk about, like, you can run a household, Mary could not run a household. She does not know what's what. I mean, she couldn't do these things. She can't run a staff. This is a strange thing for me, but I have three special needs kiddos. We have helpers for our kiddos, which requires me to kind of run a staff, which sounds kind of strange as just like a mom, but it's true. And it's complicated and there's a skill set there. And I feel like people like Agnes understand that, but the Gladyses and the Marians don't yet. And they don't really understand what it takes to make it all happen. Shout out to Blake Ritson, because I think one who plays Oscar, one of the double-edged swords of now seemingly going to have a larger role, is going to have a larger role. And that's more show you have to carry on your shoulders. And I think he had a great episode. Mm-hmm. I think I think the heartbreak, the it's kind of a one-two punch after church where... He is very much aware Gladys is not looking at him and staying away from him. But then he has to suffer the indignity of seeing John stroll laughingly with that man, the new man. Then he goes to the bar and then has to suffer what sounds like a baiting, a baiting beating in the alleyway. Mm -hmm. But then he comes in and when he just nails, he's bleeding, he's disheveled, he's clearly been jacked up in in a bad way. And his first words are, I haven't showered. Like, I can't, can't come to lunch. I haven't showered. Yeah. He just nails it. He nails it. And it, it, just a great episode. Great he episode for collapses him. right after And he collapses right after him. But then so, just the transformation, the metamorphosis in just this one episode is great. Really excited to see where this goes. I don't even know that I care that much about Oscar's story, but I like how he's portraying it. 
And, and like I said, though, he is representative of a slice of the pie. That of, we don't get to see also yeah, ever played out. And that's the thing. So, like, that that's what's interesting to me about these right. about these particular stories is that each of them have their challenges. Each of them have their obstacles, whether it be age, whether it be expectations placed on them by their parent. Because you have Oscar and Gladys, both with overbearing mothers, telling them what's what and how they should be acting. It's it's a complicated story, but I, I think that all of them play together really nicely and make it really seem interesting to start off a new season where you're like, oh, we've got a lot of like beginning threads for a lot of people. That's always exciting when you start a season that way. I, I, my last thought on this is I do want to see, I want to root for Oscar. So if we're going to follow his story and he's going to have a bigger slice of this eight episode pie, I want to be able to root for him and feel less icky about it. So how does that happen? Because how do we not feel like he's taking advantage of Gladys? I think we need to see him be a more wholesome sounds too hokey a word, but a more stand up human in an impossible situation versus how he was largely portrayed in season one as an ambitious climber in an impossible situation with no moral scruples. Mm-hmm. I want to see him. I want. I want to see him be kind-hearted, even if he has to do as far as like manipulating a young girl into marriage, because that's the impossible situation part of it. But otherwise, if not for that, I want to believe he is a kind-hearted person who would do the right thing except for when he is forced to do the wrong thing. Okay, that's fair. So there's time for that. We let's let's build let's build on that because I think we see a little bit of that. I think he's very kind to Gladys. Again, just to bring it back around, that's a it's a very kind pitch to her. Yes, he definitely is trying to get what he wants from the situation, but he's offering her good stuff which again, he knows is what she's facing, but again, she doesn't know what she doesn't know. I'm going to throw out though that like a loveless marriage with going to bed by yourself and not knowing what your husband's doing and all that. Cause I mean, this is, this is, he packaged it one way, but everybody has to remember what her life would really be. It would be isolating and lonely as much as he's trying to act like, no, no, right. we're going to be like playing board games every night. I'd like to think so, but I don't think that's for sure. Exactly. And, and they will have at least one child and she will bear all that responsibility. Yes. She'll have staff and I'm sure Bertha would make sure every need those kids will probably only see their parents 15 minutes a day and, and all of that. But cautionary tale though, it could be an Arnold Van Ryan. Yeah, it could be. It could, it could be a uh, Mr. Brooke who we never got to meet, but from all uh, from all accounts, Marion's dad was nothing to write home about. Right. You know, not everyone is uh, a young, sexy guy like Mr. Fane or oh, or I know, like an older, sexy guy like like George Russell, like her dad, who is the male figure that she knows. Most of the men in this world are not George Russell, even in George Russell's world. Most are the Jay Goulds. I'm going to hire half the population to murder the other half of the population. Or the Tritons, who are just weak men who just want to, you know, subjugate the masses for more money. She's been skewed by two good role models in her parents. Interesting. Not reflective of the reality of the situation. I really hope that while Bertha is pushing so hard for the status and the... I mean, God, I know you're talking about Oscar being like a social climber, but for God's sake, I mean, Bertha is the queen of the social climber. So... That makes Gladys the princess, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. There's a lot going on between them that I think 
this is going to reveal very interesting, small nuances for these characters because they're going to have to make some choices here that we're all going to go, boy, that's complicated. (laughs) I don't know how they're going to do that, but they're going to have to do it. Speaking of complications, we've got George Russell dealing with unions now, which the irony, I mean, do you think that Lord Fellows got any inspiration from real life, perhaps? With all the writers and actors strikes? What do we think here? As a history buff who really enjoyed the robber baron section of American history and the Industrial Revolution, the idea of union rising, railroad magnets gathered together for meeting, that, that headline is pretty awesome. And so the fact that we get this fictional George Russell, who is an amalgamation of Vanderbilt and Gould and and a lot of the other uh, railroad guys. Can I just tell you, when Vanderbilt was referred to as Billy Vanderbilt, I like kind of melted in my couch. Like I kind of (laughs) did. Because I was like, I would be the first one to call him Billy Vanderbilt. And anytime I saw him, I'd be like, Billy, you card. Because there's no way I'm not taking a man who would be like at that status and not take him down a couple notches by calling him Billy. Like there's something about it that just makes me like, it really did make me feel like squirrel. We were just having a whole conversation about the way you say someone's name and the way that you address them and how it can really be, you know, make them off kilter in the way that you address them or if you act like you forget their name or any of that business. There's a lot of game playing with names. Well, I, especially among these men, because don't be confused, even though they're sitting around the table in the scene that we see where George is sitting really directly across from Jay Gould and everyone else is kind of an accessory in that meeting. These people did not like each other. Jay Gould did not like anyone. Uh, by all accounts, he's a real asshole. And, and truly brutal and ruthless. And the way he's being portrayed here is very consistent with all accounts of kind of how he was and how he pursued his business. It's interesting coming off of the railroad crash in season one, and even though George was acquitted in his you know, leave this court with your name and tax zone, and all of that, and so he's exonerated in that way, the workers, workers died in that crash. People died in that crash. These are not safe working conditions. Oh my gosh, do you know how much I laughed when he said... They want us to put in safety measures that would make a baby's nursery look dangerous. And that made me laugh so hard because we've all seen pictures from like, you know, the early 1900s and things like babies in cages off the side of the building for fresh air or, you know, just all the things that they allowed children to do or even child labor laws or eight hour work days or these things like the way that they were just guffawing over them. And I, I mean, I hope for like that average audience member, they stop and think like, I really take for the fact that we have an eight-hour workday or that there are any safety protocols in place because a lot of people do, you know? Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting. So the background here and this whole plot line, I'm going to be very into because it feels like it's going to be steeped so much in real-world events. Well, you have family history with unions as well, so there has to be some stuff inside you that's like, you I, I grew I grew up in a house, uh, a proud union house, transport workers union, transport workers union, local 100 of the MTA in New York City, buses and subways. So the idea that... Mr. Trenton, who George runs into after church, is being played here by Tony Carlin, is having union troubles and steelworker troubles 
in Cleveland and Georgia's having union troubles and steelworker troubles in Pittsburgh. And the fact that they've now elected this man who he refers to as Henderson, he seems to know what he's doing, which is Georgia's worst nightmare. It's fine if they all just kind of bumble around, but as soon as they actually elect someone to speak for them with a brain, well, that's a problem. Let's get Billy V and Morgan, Jay Gould, let's get them around the table, let's talk about it. And so we get that meeting, we get to meet Jay Gould, who we've heard the show talk about. They've stayed away kind of from the Vanderbilts and the Goulds because of the similarities to Bertha and George insofar as the Vanderbilts go, and as far as the railroad stuff goes with the Vanderbilts and the Goulds. But now they're bringing them together. They're throwing them together. Maybe that was the plan. Was let's wait to season two and really get Jay Gould and that fantastic beard and the same with George and that fantastic beard and they just have fantastic beard conversations. I have costume porn and you have beard porn. Beard porn. <laughs> I I am so jealous of how dark yeah Inspector's beard is. It's, you are. All of his hair is like jet black. It's chef kiss. <laughs> it's a freaking it's a born in. Good. Oh, <laughs> me. I just want to be like a so. So Jay Gould here, being played by Peter ba- uh, Bradbury. Let's let's play the unions the ma- union demands clip because it's amusing. The things they're talking about, like you said, we take for granted now, but in 1883, they didn't exist. Gould, how are things going with the Knights of Labor? Better for me than for them. I should expect nothing less. Oh, that's a matter outlandish. The leader Powderman says he wants all workers to be in partnership with their employers. He can want what he likes, Mr. Gould, and he won't get it. Have you sustained any damage? Have you? This isn't a competition, Chapman. Mr. Gould is not cornering the gold market. Mr. Russell is not bankrupting a railroad. For once, we're on the same side. He's right. Let us enjoy the sensation. Well, I tried to target my freight traffic and shut some down. But you didn't give in. Oh, I can't give in. The list of what they want will grow with every concession. Houses, medical care, less work, more pay. They want an eight-hour workday, for God's sake. Safety measures that make a child's nursery look dangerous. The point is, we can't back down. Or we'll lose control of everything we've spent our lives building. For once, we must stand together and introduce change when we decide. Not them. They're a rabble, so treat them like a rabble. It comes to hire half the working class to kill the other half. That's where we're at. So a couple things to note here. The Knights of Labor, a real labor organization. It actually started off as a secret society-esque kind of thing. I'm going to read you their formal original name, which they ended up having to change. The Knights of Labor were actually officially called the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, founded in 1869. So they really had like a secret society and maybe I think only allowed Catholics initially, but I think then they decided they actually wanted to get into worker safety. That kind of was where their bent was. So where bent became. So they dropped the holy and the Catholics requirement and really became, it's actually the first organized labor movement of any kind really in America. The AFL-CIO, or the Teamster, like, that didn't exist yet in 1883. I think, actually, the CIO actually might have been formed already. I have to, I have to check that, and I'll, I'll have that before the next episode, because I think we're going to talk a lot about unions. At this time, when you start at a George Russell factory, today, one of the first people you would meet would be your union leader, and you'd sign up for the union, and you'd begin having dues, and there are locals, and there are elections, and you go to meetings, and you are being protected. We see unions everywhere nowadays. 
it didn't exist. There were no protection other than as long as you don't die and you continue to work for us, we're going to pay you whatever the salary is that we say we're going to pay you. Sick time. <laughs> Vacation time. <laughs> workers comp. Workers what? You know, I'm going to hire the population to kill the other half of the population. That's where we're at right now. So things like the Knights of Labor, largely a failure. It actually spikes in membership really in the early to mid-1880s. But then they kind of share blame, and there are some questions about how culpable or not they are with the Haymarket riots and fires and violence in 1886, I think it is. So their membership actually kind of plummets. They're down to like 100,000 members, I think I read, by like 1883, and then they just they just limp along. They were actually formally, the very last local dropped them in 1949. Uh, it was like a 50 member local and then that was and then they officially kind of went out of business so there was they they shone br- brightly for a very limited amount of time but they did in fact push for the eight hour work day that was actually one of their main concerns they had a bunch of other things but the eight hour work day and safe and more safety conditions was a big part of it which is what they're talking about here especially in light of the a railroad crash last season and the fact that these are tremendously dangerous jobs smelting iron and building railroads it is a treacherous and dangerous job largely kind of by a trial and error yeah. you know it wasn't like the height of technology that we would see today on the job if you were trying to say connect the transcontinental railroad it was kind of like hopefully we meet in the middle we'll have a little spike and it's going to be great uh just wanted to drop one name there they mentioned powderly as being then the head of the knights of labor it seemed really to be jay gould who's who's working with or facing off with the knights of labor and in fact the Knights of Labor actually do eventually strike a Jay Gould-owned railroad. I think it's in 1885, so that hasn't happened yet. But they do actually organize a strike. Powderly is the head of it. His name is Terrence V. Powderly. He is the head for, I think, 12 years of the Knights of Labor. He was actually kind of against boycotts and strike. He thought it was a leftover, a remnant of a heathen age. He thought they were uncivilized. But... He's eventually brought around to the fact that they could be effective and the fact that the Goulds and the Russells weren't willing to actually work with them until they felt the effects of these things. He leads, or the Knights of Labor actually lead a strike and boycott of the Jay Gould line, I believe, like I said, I believe in 1885. So that's why Gould knows Powderly, whereas it's setting up that George seems to be working with the Steelworkers rep, which he doesn't really refer to as a union, just more like the Steelworkers are kind of organizing and trying to find this leader, and he refers to as Henderson, who we haven't seen. But Terrence V. Powerly was a real person, really is the most significant leader of the Knights of Labor uh, over its time, and was the one leading the Knights of Labor at this point. He comes to power in 1879 to like 1893 or so. I wonder if we're going to see that. I wonder if we're going to continue to play in this labor union movement-esque kind of thing. I'm very excited if we do, but it was cool to see Jay Gould anyway. I bring all this up because maybe this isn't super interesting and it really has nothing to do with any other part of the show. The George storyline, kind of like Peggy's storyline, is very isolated. But it always has been because because everything he was doing, Bertha was always like, is that going to interfere with our trip to Newport? Is that going to interfere with our dinner? Right. Like, it was always like, hey, he was always pretty much about his business. And then it was like, how is it going to impact or how can he help social climb by using his business? But really, he's always kind of stayed in that. I mean, he even tries to use the troubles out in Pittsburgh to get out of going to the opera dinner. And he's like, no, I really need you here. He's literally saying, like, people are about to riot at my factory, but 
No, come to the dinner. As an American who has been in the workforce since I was 16, unions are extremely important. They're extremely important in all aspects of our life that we take for granted. Even if you don't have direct experience with union, products you use are available to you in part because of unions allowing workers to do the job safely and not risk their lives in order to get them to you, or unions affect your life in every way and every day. Whether you're aware of it or not, they just are. Now, have certain unions, and especially certain larger governmental, pseudo-governmental-esque unions maybe grown too powerful or have lost their way and they are not putting their workers, their, their membership first, and they're more concerned about their own individual power? Yes, there are union bosses who have lost their way, especially in the modern age. But at their core, at what they stand for, unions are vitally important to the American experience and to the growth of America into the powerful nation it was. Otherwise, men like Jay Gould and Vanderbilt and Morgan would have run roughshod without any kind of limitations placed on them, which I'm a capitalist, I am, this is what it is. But I also understand there should be limits upon those powers too. There have to be a checks and balances. Unions provide those balances. If not for Upton Sinclair and the jungle writing his story, your kids are still working in the meat processing plant and there's no food safeties. Now that's not union, but it's directly related to the union, yeah. bringing, coming in and bringing worker safety to the workplace. This is what the unions are talking about. Even the Knights of Labor, as discombobulated as they were, and by all accounts, the couple things I read about them, they were just like, you know, like very, very not well organized, which is funny because that's the whole union's thing is organizing. They were not, but they were also the first to try and do it. They were still important because they introduced the idea of, hey, maybe we just work eight hours a day. That's cool. You know, I've been sweating here. I've lost 19 pounds sweating in your coal mine today. Maybe eight hours is cool. The bird died three hours ago. So maybe I get to leave unions. We would be lost without them in this country. So it's interesting. We're really here at the birth of the, we're in the cradle and birth of the union movement in America. So for me, I'm very excited about that. I'm going to step off my soapbox. I'm going to put it away for tonight. I want to talk about Patrick Page real quick. Do you remember Mr. Clay from first season? He's he's George's lawyer. He's in almost every scene. Yes, I do remember him. Do you remember him having as deep a voice as he has even in that scene? No. No. Patrick Page is a fantastic actor. In the time since season one was filmed and then aired, Patrick Page has really blown up. And he's he's always been a theater actor, but he is really blown up in stardom because he was one of the originators uh, he was one of the original cast members of Town, a huge Broadway hit and now he has spawned and he is appearing ever. He was in season 2 of Schmigadoon and if you watch Schmigadoon on Apple TV Plus he plays the gangster who owns the uh, bar, the Chicago style bar in Schmigadoon he, because he played Hades and he's a baritone, very deep voice, so a deep voice that I need to work on if I ever want to keep that low, he just naturally speaks in that tone, because as Hades and Hades Town, that's all of his songs are in that very, very bass baritone range, it's kind of what he's been known for. Uh, it's, it's, it's become kind of his calling card. When you hear Patrick Page come in your video game or in your commercial or uh, on your TV and you're in another room, you're like, hey, that's Patrick Page. I noticed right away in this season, Mr. Clay speaking very deeply. This is who Patrick Page is. I want to play you a real clip 
of uh, of Patrick Page singing, and you can hear this is Mr. Clay. <laughs> And we build the wall, my children, my children. And we build the wall. Why are you building the wall? We build the wall. How does the wall keep us free? My children, my children, how does the wall keep us free? Why do we build the wall? To keep the workers in there for eight hours a day. That's Patrick Page. Put that put that that forty second clip up against your chest and it will just rumble you. So it's I just I found it funny. This is a total totally unimportant to the episode, but it amused me how much he's leaning into his Patrick Page voice, which I do not remember him using at all in season one, especially in this meeting with Jay Gould and George and, and Mr. Triton. It's he's like their their demands make it feel like a nursery. It's like, oh my god, my chest is just rumbling. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty funny. And I like I like the success it's been able to translate into the show as where it is now. It's just how time passes. People we didn't really know were gonna be famous become super famous right. in, the, in the middle of the show. In the middle of the show. <sighs> All right, one more clip for you as we move to our final topic. Do I have to be at the dinner? Only have some troublesome business in Pittsburgh I'm dealing with. I need you there. I wish I could understand the whole thing. You don't even like opera. Not so I've ever noticed. <laughs> George, the opera is where society puts itself on display. Not just in New York, but all over Europe. And the leaders take boxes where they meet each other and their children court each other. And that is how the wheels of society turn. The Academy tried to stop the Metropolitan from being built. And they thought they could. But it'll be open by the end of October. If you decide to back the bet, you know you'll be taking on Mrs. Astor. And? Of course, I love that you're not afraid of her. I'm glad to be her friend, George, but not her lackey. Question for you. Is it an admirable trait or a flaw in Bertha that several people warn her? People that are reliably her friends or very much on her side, like George... Warn her, warn her in this episode or point out to her in her episode that these opera wars that she is undertaking, just because she's annoyed that she's not been taken ahead of a very long list of people on the Academy of Music's waiting list for a box seat, that she is doing so at the cost of going to war with Mrs. Astor over this or falling out with Mrs. Astor over this after she worked so hard in season one to get into favor with Mrs. Astor. Is it a flaw or is it an admirable trait that she is still full steam ahead in this episode, even after George, Aurora, Warren, McAllister? They all say, know what you're doing. She she seems like she knows what she's doing. I think she knows what she's doing. I think that, you know, you saying that, that this is all based on her not getting a box. No, it's not. It's based on exactly what that clip just said. It's where society goes to see and be seen. It's where it's where you make the connections. It's where the younger people are finding their spouses. It's where 
probably business deals and stuff are being made. So as much as like the opera now has really fallen out of favor as like a mainstream entertainment activity for most Americans, most people probably have never even gone to an opera. Have you been to a proper opera? Once. I have also been just I, once. I've listened to opera. I mean, I've listened to opera, but go on. Same. But it's the but it's the experience. It was yes. something that I wanted. It was like a bucket list thing that I was like, I've never been to the opera. I would like to say I've been, but that wouldn't be the thing. I mean, you know, and also I was surrounded that night by people who went to the opera all the time. So it still exists. It's just not a part of society that you and I get to partake in on the regs uh, because we're just not part of those people. But I think that she's trying to remind everybody, like. She was never, it was never endgame was not just to be in Mrs. Astor's good graces. That was never her endgame. She wants to be Mrs. Astor. You cannot pledge your loyalty to the person who you intend to be. Just forget that. And she is being clear. She's saying, I can be a friend, but I'm not willing to be Ward McAllister. I'm not willing to be a bootlicker and do whatever Mrs. Astor says. So I think that that's important for everyone to remember. She's not trying to go up against Mrs. Astor, but at the same time, there's no Mrs. Astor has left no path for people to come into that society. What are you supposed to do? Honestly, what are you supposed to do? I mean, you have to, you have to come for the, you have to come for it because it's your own, that's what you do. You make your own dinner. You make your own opera house. You, you do, you throw your own ball, you know, when you don't get invited, it's very you, tricky business. You go and build your own sandbox. If they won't let you play it there. Exactly right. There's one clip that goes with that opera audio clip. It's this loyalty discussion between Mrs. Astor and Bertha. We need to play that here because really, I think this is actually what's really setting up the theme of the season. But our friend Mr. McAllister seems to think that you're unhappy that the Academy has failed to find a box for you. When one became available. But there are people on that list who have waited forever. Your day will come, my dear. And the Academy of Music has served New York society for 30 years. Have they not earned our loyalty? Yours, maybe, but not mine. Not when they won't let me in. Why didn't they see this coming and build more boxes when there was still time? The Academy has been short-sighted. I'm told there are 120 boxes in the new Metropolitan Opera House. They can't want it to be exclusive. They'll fill them, though, with so many new people in the city now. Mrs. Russell, you must know how very proud I am of your success in New York. That's generous. I mean it. You worked to be accepted, and I do hope that I was there. You wouldn't want to throw that all away and find yourself back where you started, out on your ear. I suppose I'd like to go where I'm valued, where people are friendly. Well, the audience at the new opera house will be easy to meet, but you'll find that they are hard to get rid of. Why don't I give a dinner of opera enthusiasts so we can discuss the whole subject? Would you come? Yes, see a list of the guests. When I have one. But give me a date that works first. I need you there to be my guide. I shall take it very seriously. I wouldn't like to see you pay the price for backing the losing side. Well, you're right about one thing, Mrs. Astor. I certainly intend to find myself on the winning side. <laughs> I know they don't have it in the scene, but I feel very much like I heard white gloves being taken off and slapped across people's faces in that, at the end of that, that tete-a-tete. 
the don't back the losing side. Oh no, don't worry. I don't intend to back the losing side. The challenge has been laid. It's, it's an interesting question of Mrs. Astor only speaks in terms of loyalty, loyalty to the old ways, loyalty to the academy. How have they earned our loyalty? But really she, what she means is loyalty to me because I don't think she really ever talks about her loyalty to say the Van Rhines or to the other high society families. I don't see her sticking her neck out for Mamie Fish. Loyalty for Mrs. Astor is only coming in towards her. Mm-hmm. And so she doles out the loyalty to the Episcopal Church because she's a founding member. Her family is a founding member, and they give her a nice pew. She is loyal to the Academy because the Academy has afforded her probably the nicest box in the Academy of Music. So loyalty is her buzzword, but really only works as so far as it comes to her. Whereas Bertha appreciates loyalty and friendship, but very much in this scene, and then, as you discussed with the George scene, doesn't want to be a lackey. She doesn't want to be Ward McAllister, or maybe Fish, or Aurora Fane. She wants to... She's coming for the throne. In the end of season one, watch the ball again when Mrs. Astor says... She's, she's got her teeth out, her, her fangs bared, and she says, I'm here. But make my mistake. I'm here, but I can destroy you whenever I want. And Bertha smiles and she says, I understand, but you won't. Oh, why? Because we're the same. That's horrifying to Mrs. Astor, but it's not even a question to Bertha. And if we're being honest, I think Bertha probably sees herself as better than Mrs. Astor because she has the same level of money. She has more, probably. She will have the same level of power. She'll probably have more. But also then she has a progressiveness to her thought that she doesn't see Mr. And Mrs. Astor having. And that is, I think, ultimately for Bertha, her greatest asset in Mrs. Astor and all of the old money people, their greatest flaw is their lack of ability to see how the future plays out. She even says in this clip, she says, how, how can they not have enough boxes? And Mrs. Astor, as a little surprise, says they were short-sighted. Well, this is all a metaphor. Bertha is the Met. Bertha is the new money. Mrs. Astor, you are the academy. You are the old money. You have been short-sighted. I think if you ask Bertha her greatest asset, it was it would be that she is very far-sighted. She's just not in the moment, or even more importantly, is not looking backwards. She's not standing there polishing her genealogy tree to the pilgrims or to the Stuyvesants. She's looking ahead. Where, not where we were, but where are we tomorrow? Where are we a year from now? Where where am I? She's probably thinking her millennium party. It's 17 years off. She's probably thinking, I know what I'm going to want to do or where I want to be when we bring in the, you know, the year 1900. She's thinking ahead. That, I think, is her greatest asset and so far as she sees it. And I think she's probably right. Progress is unending. Progress always marches forward. You cannot stop progress. As much as John Dutton in Yellowstone wants to be the rock upon which progress smashes, you can't actually stop progress. You can't stop the march of time. Eventually it overtakes you. You can put up a fight. You can hold the wave at bay. Eventually it's going to wear you down, though. I think their dynamic is very unique and well-written. One of the things that I note about their interactions is that they're not talking about men and they're not talking about relationships. And it's one of the few times within the show, but then even just within all of entertainment, where we have women talking about things that have 
nothing to do with their relationship to men. And I understand people can say, oh, family money all came down to the bed. Of course, yes. Yes, y'all are right. But they are talking about things that matter to the two of them. I also appreciate the very careful relationship dynamic they have. Mrs. Astor says, I'm proud of you. She has no right or business to say she's proud of of Bertha. She's not a parent. She's not a grandparent. She's not a mentor in that sense. Bertha likes to allow her to pretend that Mrs. Astor is her mentor by saying things like, I need you there because I need you to be my guide. That is verbal manipulation. I mean, beautiful. Because what is Mrs. Astor going to say? No, I'm not going to guide you through this opera thing. No, of course not. She's got, I've got, I want to have a say and I want to guide you through this. Okay. To so fair, there she actually is, says, she says a very similar thing to George about why he can't go to his oh, of course. She, she says, she's like, I need you there to be there, to be my hand. Of course. Know? Of course. She's very protection. Everything is about protection and security, right? It all comes in these pairs. The pairing between Mrs. Astor and Bertha is very unique. You very rarely get to see two powerful women speaking to each other. And I know you were taking it like they were kind of being like nasty. If those were two men talking, you didn't once say that that meeting amongst the Goulds and the Vanderbilts was nasty. But oh, they I don't think it was nasty. I, I think it was. I think it was each of them. People will categorize it differently. People will categorize their conversation. They may use words like caddy or petty or words like that discussing Bertha and Mrs. Astor's conversation, whereas they will discuss the men as being powerful, decision makers, difficult choices, these kinds of things, right? And it's important to understand that, again, through these social situations is where George is getting to meet some of these men. I mean, through Bertha's work is how he is also gaining power within his business world. I, I want to be really clear with our audience that, like, even though they're discussing thing, they're discussing things that seem like it's a social calendar kind of thing. Like, who cares who goes to the opera? That's how most of us would think, right? But remembering the importance of social standing and who you can even do business with, dependent on what your social standing was, the way that these women are working with each other, but also, I mean, adamantly against one another in very, very different ways of thinking of what should go next, what should be coming next. At the same time, they are working together. They do understand that they have to work together, not unlike Gould and Vanderbilt. So you guys do not want to work together, but we got it for like the greater good here, right? So I'm interested to see how they can continue to have these nuanced conversations where we have Bertha able to bring in the truth. Like she gets real with Mrs. Astor a lot. Like, what about this? Why didn't they do it this way? How come they did this? Again, a little bit being our little avatar, right? Because we're the audience and we're saying, yeah, why didn't they just build more boxes? Why are they acting like this? These conversations are helping us build this world and understand how specifically they keep people out over things like how many seats are in an entertainment venue. You know, that's tricky. I mean, just look at Mrs. Astor and her point of view. She says, well, the, the Met is going to have 120 boxes. They must not want to be very exclusive. 120 is not a lot of boxes. You know, it's, it's not a lot. And that fits 400 people. Tops if you cram those boxes full of people. 
what level of exclusivity are we talking about here? You, you know, so I think you know, isn't there? Of course, the four hundred. Of course, right? uh, some interesting things I wanted to highlight when you said about uh, going back to the first thing you said about Miss Vaster saying, "I'm proud of you," and she has no right to say mm-hmm. that. That is her taking direct advice from Ward McAllister. Go back towards the end of, I think it's the season one finale, when Bertha has put her into a box because she's kicked Carrie out of the quadrille. We see a scene between Mrs. Astor and Ward McAllister, and Mrs. Astor is like, does she think she's really going to bully me into doing this? And Ward says to her, you know I love being your lab doll, with whatever the accent, the indescribable accent that that Nathan Lane uses. Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> well, that's say, what, I say, that's what she decided. <laughs> well, I love being your lab doll. We all know you can't keep the new people out forever. So I say, I say, I say, you best take them in and take the credit for it now. It's true. They will throw you out and not let you in. That's what she's doing. That where does she get up? She doesn't, but she's taking her. She's sitting in her room. Remember when last time she was in the drawing room, she would not sit. Bertha was like, "Sit down," and she would not sit. Here she's sitting and drinking tea. They're all playing their look. Look what I've done for you, game. And Bertha's playing the, the 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 buttering her up because how can she turn her down? But she's directly taking Ward's words advice here by saying I'd like to say I like to think I had a hand in 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 all and how far you've come and I applaud you it's so good to watch how far you've come and and Bert says oh you're so kind but that's Ward saying give in now and then you take the credit for it that's what she's doing yeah it's it's a good trick it's, it's, it's great and absolutely. it's great callback it's they're great like playing right it's, they're both playing with this because it also it also puts the other person in a diminutive role if you say i'm proud of you you're saying i have the power to be proud of you right. i mean peers don't typically say i'm proud of oh, you for sure. someone who's above you gets to say that that's all very tricky tricky business because I feel like we know Mrs. Astor's days are numbered. We know they are. Now, do you think that she is a potential pass away in, in this season or next? No. No? You don't see that? No, she has to stay around to see her fall from grace. Okay. Death is a hollow victory for Bertha. I don't think she has to take Mrs. Astor down in terms of, like, it's not... I don't think that's a requirement for Bertha, do you? Like, yeah. the, Mrs. Astor has to be, like absolutely out of the picture a mrs astor doesn't step down she dies upon her throne yeah, i'm saying she dies no and that's what she, against it she you're met- saying we're gonna see her go down she metaphorically she metaphorically has to die she has to she has to find herself not able to get into the new sandbox ward mccallister for prophesized it in that scene it will come a time when the new people will seize the power and then we will be on the outside looking in, or at least you will, Mrs. Astor. I play all the sides so off. Right. Okay. But you will be on the outside looking in at that point. We have to get to that point because, yes, Bertha wants to be supplant and replace Mrs. Astor, but she also wants everyone to fucking know she did it, including Mrs. Astor. So she can't die. 
Bertha, Bertha can't take her status to the grave and, and like, look what I did. No. She, she has to be able to look through the window when it's raining and Mrs. Astor's little sad face is pressed against the window. Okay, I'm not willing to put that much on Bertha at this point. I'm not willing to go there quite yet. I see you, and it's a wonderful storytelling narrative that you're creating. We're not literally but, pressing her face up against the rain, but one day, one day Christina Nilsson is going to perform at the Met, which does in fact happen on October 26th of 1883. I don't know that Mrs. Astor is going to be able to get to that concert. That's how she wins. That's what Bertha needs. Bertha needs for that to happen and Mrs. Astor, no, no, the McNeils got the box before you. They were on board with the Met from the go. Well, I guess we're gonna make I you a box it. as soon as they I just don't know that that Bertha like I'm giving her more credit. I give her more credit that it is not she thinks bigger than taking down Mrs. Astor. That that's not her goal. Her goal is to be the new society queen. It's that I don't think of you at all. It's not like you are making the goal take down the big dog, and I think Bertha's a big enough dog to say I don't even think about that big dog. No, I, I, it's I, not even important to me. I, I will blow by her and move right on. I agree with you that that's her goal, but that goal only happens with taking down the disaster. But that's just like a part of the a part of it. It's just another stepping stone. But it isn't. It isn't. I think she's in that goal. goal. I think I'm not saying it's the goal. I'm saying as she passes by, she's gonna smile, and wow. she's gonna wow. and, she, and she's gonna say, "Flora and Robert McNeil got the box." Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Catherine. I mean, I totally get it. I totally get it. Don't don't misunderstand me. I just feel like I don't want to dumb down the women's portion of this into like a slap fight, into Mean Girls, into like she's just trying to make her because she don't wear pink on Wednesday, like. I don't think that we have to take their storyline and make it into a cat fight. Like, I think that Bertha has her own goals and her own plan. And Mrs. Astor is an obstacle by far. It really is. But I really think she has a much, much bigger end game that includes her children and everything you know, marrying off and becoming this big old royal everything. I, I 100% agree, but I think you're discounting a little bit of the shaman fruit that's involved here. Even George. George was talking to Jay Gould about, uh, have you done any damage to your stuff? Um, and Jay Gould, Jay Gould gets defensive and Tritton has to say, listen, we're actually all on the same side here. We don't, it's not, you know, he's not trying to replace you, Jay, you know, just answer him. But George, George kind of wants to know if Jay's shit has gotten fucked up because he's going to smile a little bit. If Jay's, if Jay takes in the teeth and he doesn't, George's going to be happy about that. Jay Gould certainly will. I don't think it's a male-female thing. I think it's an alpha dog thing. I think alpha dogs, when they take over and pass the alpha dog, I think they go back. I think they piss on them a little bit. I think think real alpha dogs don't even look back. I I just think they just keep going. Like, lions don't wonder what the sheep are doing. They just fucking... I think the alpha dog dog has to go in the bathroom, and if he has a choice where he's going to do it, He's going to do it where the old alpha dog used hey, to Hey, I'm looking That's forward to it. I just I don't, think it's both. I just don't, I don't want the Mrs. Astor Bertha portion to... I want them to be on the same. And I really think that Lord Julian Vellos is trying in all of his words to say to us, please stop dumbing down the society part of it. Please stop taking the social engagement. I mean, yes, because the way, yes, because last season we had things like an arts and crafts fair. 
Yes, I think societally in modern day, people think that is lame and stupid. Mm -hmm. But it was a big deal that George came in and just bought everybody's stuff. You could look at that and be like, that is like a PTA bullshit move, right? You could you can make it seem small and petty, but bigger picture and especially part of this time where you were societally meant whether you could go to a restaurant or you could who you could marry, who you could even talk to, what church you could go to. I mean all those things that I feel like the the women's parts of this it's it is the the silent puppet master that's like pulling those strings and opening doors. I would hope anyone who's watching this show though then I phrased my last question poorly. I, w- I was asking more of, did you actually s- see people having that conversation? Because I think if you're watching this show, I would hope either you get it about that these are important issues for how the world worked, especially at this time. And if you don't get it, at least you're, you're, you're asking yourself, why are we at an arts and crafts show? Or why are we talking about the opera and thinking that it's not frivolous. They wouldn't do a whole show about something that's frivolous. So there is something here, and let's let's do the thought. I don't think your average mouth breather is going to be watching Gilded Age. I guess is my point. So I'm curious: are the people who's actually watching Gilded Age now? I think there's a whole segment of people who would never watch a show about the Gilded Age because they hear to an old woman and a slightly younger woman arguing about opera boxes. Like pass. Like. Well, I think a lot you know, of people would say that, that that it was like really cringy, weird, real chick flicks, or very privileged. Like, I'm sorry, you're talking about opera boxes. Like, what are you talking about? But that's why that's why I'm encouraging those who are listening to a don't compare these things to our current modern day society. The the different things they're talking about, where you're sitting in a box, is is way more like being accepted into a college practically. It's like you're getting into something where you're going to be sitting amongst a different set of peers. And so opportunities are going to be there for you that weren't. And I think that that's really important because, again, I think that George is going to get a lot of play and a lot of respect for what he's doing for business. I think that Bertha doesn't get the respect for how much she has done to maneuver her family to be in the right place at the right time. The opera clip that we pulled, uh, that we played a little while ago about her explaining why opera is important because George says to her, you don't think yeah. like opera. But that's, that's, that's at the front of the episode. And that's Lord right. Fellows speaking directly at your face saying, right. stop downplaying opera. Because I feel like that's where I'm getting it from. When you're saying, do you hear people say that? No, the writer is telling me people are going to downplay this. I'm going to write lines directly to them saying, this is how society runs. This is why opera is important. This is why I care about it. When you title it, you don't even like opera, then it's important to answer that question. So why is it important if you don't even like opera? Why is it even important? And a lot of audience members, unfortunately, are going to be folding laundry, making dinner, doing whatever, and it's going to play like a soap opera storyline of two women complaining about what seat they're sitting in to watch a show and that's not what this is about so i just want all of our listeners to be the sophisticated cream of the crop who says y'all got it wrong i listened to this podcast and let me tell you why the opera really freaking mattered you know that's what we want you guys to walk away from with this and it's like the opening clip of the episode that's the first thing right the first thing people will hear when they listen to this. <laughs> 
Uh, going back to quickly, because we're going to wrap up here and just hit a couple of small other points. The McNeils, Flora McNeil, Robert McNeil. Yeah. Robert McNeil it really hasn't been fleshed out yet, but Robert McNeil is a banker in this world, a very powerful banker, a guy who runs factories and needs lots of capital all the time. Having a banker on your side who is very team met and so very into what Bertha and George, he's crediting George for it. No, we're not crediting George for it, but he's very much the. He's very much saying, we are in favor. If you are team met, we're in. He's saying it to George and Bertha kind of conspiratorially, which then, like you said, that's new business. That's new lines of credit. That's new money coming Doors opening. You don't think a Robert McNeil wants to take on a J.P. Morgan who's at this time? That's right. For sure. Exactly Even though the right. Morgans are actually new money, though, too. The shock, though, is that Flora, Flora McNeil, who we got to know a bunch in season one through cryptic stalking by we Watson. We like looking behind a tree. <laughs> we learned in season one, Watson has this other name, Collier. We learned the mystery of it in this episode. She sees him. Uh, Watson has been promoted for this dinner by church to be an underbutler. So he'll be serving uh, wine throughout the dinner. She's I'm so proud of that. Let's just so take like a hot moment for that. He's, he's All the other staff looked over like, what you're doing? It was so cute. I really appreciated that. He's George's valid. So this is a big, this is a big time for him. Like he doesn't get seen. So he is being seen and in getting the white gloves and he's really part of the service. And it's an important role insofar as the roles go with the dinner. Her reaction to it, it's as if a ghost literally walked in the room we learn the twist of that, in fact, is her father. Yeah. Obviously, this is going to be dwelled on more and more explained in, in episode two, so I don't want to go into it too much. But at least now we have an answer for the, all those weird cryptic scenes that we didn't get really any leverage on or traction on in season one. Boom. That's Flora's father. That's going to be a problem, possibly for the McNeils. Possible scandal. Your father is an underbutler or valet at the Russell House, the new money house. Yeah. So, you know, Trouble. interesting to see how that's going to go. Trouble. The biggest part of the end of the scene, last thing I really want to talk about, we'll talk about Newport in the next episode. The brand new house that the Russells have purchased, as well as Mrs. Blaine's house that Larry may become doing the work for, and the fact that Larry gets to be doing architecture now. He's like a fixer-upper. But, like, significant. Like, yeah. that house is ginormous that the Russells purchased mm-hmm. that for. Um, and I, you know what I appreciated in that whole thing? I really appreciated how much that Bertha was being so supportive of Larry. Yes. That really made me happy, because, again, we see her with a lot of headbutting with her kids. We don't see a lot of loving mom and, and not that the not that the headbutting is coming from a negative place but we don't see a lot of i you did a really great job and she actually says you did a great job I'm like especially given the job, tumultuous nature of larry yes getting the courage and not having a warm reception from george when he expressed that he wanted to do architecture, architecture are, you little, are you a little bit surprised that 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 kind of smoothed over and he is actually doing it? I really want to know more how they got there. Because, we, yeah, we did. We just saw it. So, we saw the, we saw the, right. the you know, oh, you got to take over. So right now it's, it's the family home and so was it more of like a hobby thing with an unlimited credit card? Right. Not a credit card, but the idea of, you know, like the unlimited funds kind of, right. right. And it's the family home. Now we we're talking about, I want to get new work and Warren McAllister swooping in. I may have a thing. Well, now, that, now we're talking maybe a business. Now I'm curious if George is going to to continue to tolerate this 
now when it's not just the family home that he rented with, but now now my son is an interior decorator. Is George going to be okay with that? Interesting. Is Bert going to be okay with that? Her ears picked up at 18 months widow, much younger than her dead husband. In the very short time we've heard about Miss Bling, that we never got to see her, being in Newport allows her more freedom. Yeah, that was an interesting term. I mean, I think she's DTF. Is what I'm, that's what I'm thinking, because okay. you can't be doing that in New York, but maybe a younger woman with a super old husband that she clearly married just for the money, and she got some oats to sow, maybe. Okay. So Bertha, very interested in what Mrs. Blaine's deal is, which we don't learn here, but we will learn more in episode Man, we covered a lot. This is a <laughs> two-hour episode. Guys, again, thank you for being patient with us getting to this episode, and we're very excited to be catching up on episodes two and three. By then, we should be pretty much back on even release keel with you. We are going to leave with, with one last thing. I do want to mention this this whole thing at the end of the opera dinner where Bertha manages to switch out the hall into Impressive. this amazing opera set that we have Christina Nielsen come and sing, and just what an overwhelming accomplishment that was. I mean, when all of them were sitting there, and they were like, how could you have built this during dinner? Like, I mean, I give Bertha just a lot of credit for being so resourceful and and knowing how to navigate very carefully. I mean, the look on Mrs. Astor's face when she starts singing and then to see everyone else kind of melt into like, I can't believe we're like seeing this. We're seeing this private performance and like, oh my God, this is so amazing. It was a triple punch though, because that dinner, that dinner went so south. So, I mean, we think Flora McNeil had a bad dinner, but for Mrs. Astor, it was hearing that Christina Nelson of all people is going to open the season at the Met. New York, the Academy is her home in New York. She always plays there. Well, now she's playing at the Met. And then to hear that the Met has so much money, it's going to be able to intentionally run at loss in order to bring the largest talent, the, the greatest opera talent in the world for an entire season because they can afford to do that. That's not fair. Mrs. Astor comes up with the scalding retort that's not fair (laughs) that's where she's at and then to hear that they flew her in or boated her in they didn't fly her in they boated her in from Europe to sing one aria a very famous aria it's the Marguerite aria from from Faust in the foyer of the house right right that's not fair for a handful of really rich people yeah like that's amazing i think also though it it under it underlines bold faces mrs astor's lack of a grasp of how much money the new money people have and how much they're willing to spend their money. Because when we look at the Van Ryans, we look at the Astors, we look at all of those families who have such a tight grip on their money. Like like the fear is so real. And we talked about this a bunch, so we're not going to talk about it a ton right now, but I'm just going to touch on it. The idea that the new money people have a sense of confidence that they could rebuild their wealth if needed versus the old monies 
insecurities and desperation of holding on to the money that none of them actually built. They're all, it's all coming from generations before them. And so now they don't have that confidence to say like, well, we could just rebuild the wealth. If something happens, we can spend all the money. It's fine. Instead. Now it's like you have Mrs. Astor sit back and be like, well, how could you run at a loss? The Russell's and that whole echelon of people being like, let's make more money. And it's like, well, well, what? Like, what do you mean you just make more money? Like, that is not how the old money people are thinking. It's interesting that Mrs. Astor actually ha- is forced to acknowledge Bertha's growing power in society in the fact that, one, that she even comes to this thing. but immediately, and doesn't leave. Immediately realizes this has been a setup and doesn't leave. Because I think season one, Mrs. Astor leaves without even saying she's because she just yeah. goes yeah. but here i mean bertha has to say it to her and, and pleads and i'm putting that in air quotes of i get it but don't leave no scandal on the paper let, let us not fall out about this and this that which gives mrs astor the cover to save face but if she was really scandalized she really would have left but she has to acknowledge in this situation plus maybe there's some more about curiosity mm. about what's going to happen here and she can report back to the old money and the, and the academy about what's happening she i don't think in her wildest fears when she sees mr gilbert and she says you're the one money grubbing for the net right. as if they're kicking couch cushions for pennies I know. she doesn't have any idea the extent of the wealth on display here but the fact that she doesn't leave the fact that she has to see her friends mammy fish in that white dress in the red christmas growing or whatever the hell that thing was that she was wearing Maddie, you're here. What, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be one of us. I didn't say, I didn't write you a letter and say, come to the opera dinner. You're here because you're here. Aurora's here because she's here. Actually, what Aurora's around, which was, but the McNeils are here. The McNeils have been waiting even longer than you, dear. Right. You know, well, that's why the McNeils are pissed. That's why they're here. Your empire's crumbling all around you. Look, your friends are here. Mm-hmm. Your friends are here. You know? And also, you can be a part of it. Like we we invited you, right. and that's the thing is like that's well, the big fat difference is like we'll still invite you and you can still be a part of the in crowd, but you've got to stop being the gatekeeper for the in crowd. Bertha just hits her with too much logic in the drawing room when she says, "Take a box in both. What does it cost you? Yeah, take like a, what do you care? Take a box in both, and then then you can have then you can be in all the society. There's no society too big for you if you have a box in both." I'm sure Bertha would take a box. Well, the Academy was like, we can give you a box. That is the most exclusive of boxes. I'm sure she would. But why wouldn't she take a box? Well, because you know the answer. Because she's only interested if there's have-nots. She's not interested in in extending that that list. A couple of fun facts as we round out the episode. Christina Nielsen, this episode is being played by Sarah Joy Miller. Sarah Joy Miller is, in fact, an opera singer. I think this was actually maybe her first TV credit she ever had. Sarah Joy Miller performed as Marguerite in the Michigan Opera Theater's debut production of Faust, the opera. Wow. Which is the role she's singing here and playing here in this episode. And I think I said before, I'm going to put a bunch of this on our Facebook group. I don't want to go into it here. I talked a little bit about last season. I talked about, about the Academy versus the Met and, and that scandal. But I will say the Met did, in fact, open down on 39th Street in its first season, which is October 22nd, 1883. Charles Grunard's Faust 
was their opening production. Christina Nielsen was the soprano, was the soprano in that opera, did perform in that opera. All of the names mentioned at the end of the episode were all all performed for the Met in its first season. The only one I couldn't uh, confirm was Andrea Romano. Every other name that Mr. Gilbert says during the dinner all performed in the first season of the Met in real life. So, like, they did their homework, They and it really was, like, the creme de la creme, and it very much was, you know, kind of suck it to the Academy. Like, we can do it. You can't stop us. This is the New World Order. The New World Order is literally having a fun rise, and that's very exciting to watch. I cannot wait to watch more. We've got a lot more coverage for you guys as... Episode two will be coming much quicker than episode one. So you guys, thank you guys so much for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. If you do, it helps the show so much in promotion and making it visible and helping other people find it. Plus, if you read us a nice five, if you leave us a nice five-star review, we're going to read it on the air just like this one. This review comes from AntiZoom uh, on Apple Podcasts. Love the two of you and both of your interpretations. The research into the history is so great. It lends to the story a richness and truth. An explanation, an explanation to the behavior of the characters is fulfilling and lets the viewer cast their own opinion. Excellent recaps. Well, Auntie we think you're an excellent review lever, and we appreciate you. So get out there, leave your five-star reviews. Let's all work on this together. Let's build the Met. Let's kick some butt. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Ciao. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.